I don't know where this completely out of sync singing of the theme music became like, you know, canon for this podcast, but I'm totally in aid of it. Um, deep into the archives. I can't imagine without it now. Um, yeah. You know. Hello everyone. Be damned, we'll keep it up. <laughs> Hello everyone. Welcome to Radio Moorpork, the podcast where we go through Terry Pratchett's Discworld series one book at a time, rating, reviewing, discussing, analyzing, rambling, and ranking. I am, as ever, as most of the time, I am Colm, and he is. Uh, I am Steve, and since we recorded our last podcast, Colm has had a birthday. Everyone, happy birthday to Colm. Yay! I'm the only podcaster with a birthday, so it's it's particularly notable. Mm, so everyone, hold on to that juicy piece of gossip. Now, try not to spread it around too much, yeah. but like you know, revel in the juiciness of it. And it's so going to work the future-proofing of the podcast. I, you know, I, I imagine people will be listening to this for, for years to come at all sorts of times of the year. So they'll kind of assume whatever day they listen to it, it was recently my birthday. Presumably aging me by several hundred years. Like <laughs> a kind of reverse sleep year effect. <laughs> yeah, because obviously the people who listen to this have no idea how like continuous time works. <laughs> no, no, of course not. They're all They're all... All our listeners live in L space. Um, yeah, and w- w- so we're here today to talk about Snuff, the third mm. to last book in the uh, Discworld um, canon, the last Sam Vimes book. Um, so I suppose before we get into the get into the weeds of of discussing and analysing it, we'll just quickly recount the plot and bring people back up to speed. So we begin with Sam Vimes reluctantly going on a holiday to his wife Sybil's family's rural estates um, outside of Mank Moorpork. As, as we start the book, he sort of... Uh, it, the, 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 the narration kind of portrays it like he's going to be, you know, given something really terrible or, or, you know, trying to avoid some really terrible fate and then it turns out it's a rather more mundane matter of going on a holiday. So he goes off on this holiday with uh, Sybil and young Sam and his butler, Willikins. Uh, they find the kind of servants at the, the family home very stiff, very proprietorial, uh, with a lot of emphasis on kind of ancient protocols and so on, uh, which, which puts volumes off enormously. Sybil's full of nostalgia for this place where she spent kind of childhood summers and so on. And Vimes is a uh, fish out of water at first, a city boy in the country, not being able to hear the usual city noises, smell the usual city smells, suspecting crime around every corner, but almost worried that he won't find it and will just have a boring family holiday instead. Back in Ankh-Morpork, uh, Sergeant Colon and Corporal Nobbs visit a cigar shop, uh, talk to the owner. I think at that point they kind of allude to, like, smuggling that's going on with cigars which which will i i could be wrong but i feel like that kind of seed is planted early on it, it later kind of reaches fruition but in any case your your man gives him a cigar uh inside colon finds like a tiny pot that is a, is a goblin artifact and then he finds it sort of stuck to his hand and he begins to get progressively sicker but we sort of we ping pong in the narration between the our main our A plot in, in the country with Vimes and our B plot back in Ankh-Morpork with uh, Colin and the rest of the watch. But So what else is happening back in the country with Vimes, Steve? 
I beg your pardon. So um, at this point, Vimes is uh, trying to get used to uh, the countryside. He's going on walks with his son, young Sam, and uh, exploring the surrounding countryside. He sees the river. Oh, God, the river's name has escaped me now. Old Treachery, isn't it? Um, I'm not sure if that's its official name, like on a map, but certainly that's the name that locals know it by. Hmm. Uh, yeah, so he sees that river, and after that, he um, after a couple of other like minor uh, incidents, he goes down to the local pub, and once there, he discovers that the barkeeper used to be a uh, policeman. So he figures this might be a good source of like general information because at this point he's kind of got a gut feeling something is going on in the countryside. One thing he notices while he's in the bar is there's a lot of hunting trophies on the walls. Uh, among them is a goblin's head, which becomes significant later on. While at the pub, he has a bit of a run-in with the local blacksmith, Jethro Jefferson, who seems to have a general dislike for like the middle to upper class, saying that he doesn't think they are any more worthy of owning the land than anyone else. So he's constantly butting heads with him um, before the situation is diffused. But on the second trip to the bar, he basically demands face off and Vines basically says okay fine no problem he has Willikins on standby but insisting he doesn't intervene and basically they have a little bit of a scrap that Vines being the hardened policeman that he is takes him completely uh, off guard and takes him to the ground basically and after this because he respects Jethro enough that he's a sensible enough man he says that he's sure that he will be able to stand up, take his defeat like gracefully, and then just back off. Uh, what happens after this, Colin? So Jetro sort of alludes to nefarious goings on in in the locale, and you know that that's what has him as angry as he is, and agrees to meet Vimes at night up at a place called I think it's Hangman's Hill. And um, when, when Vimes goes there. He just finds that the plate that Jetro never shows up, but there's a lot of blood around, um, and he finds you know, I think it's a like a severed claw or hand of a goblin there. So he figures out that some goblins have been killed there, but also reckons that um, he's been basically like a, I suppose he's been had someone has kind of created this situation to to incriminate him. His suspicions are confirmed when the, the local copper, a kind of wet behind the ears, fellow called Feeney, is ordered to arrest him by the, the magistrates on suspicion of, of, you know, Jethro's murder. He convinces Feeney otherwise, kind of half through browbeating, half through sort of earning his respect, half through playing on his, um, that's three halves, but however, playing on his, his role within the local community, like Feeney's mother in particular, is kind of awestruck by the, the, the local aristocracy. So, he then takes Feeney with him into the... Oh, in Feeney's sort of makeshift uh, police station. There's a goblin there called Stinky, and he kind of urges Vimes to get justice for the, the goblins. So having found this severed goblin claw, and now having this goblin implore him to uh, find justice, Vimes goes with Feeney into the goblin cave. Um, the goblins are uh, really oppressed, underclass, hated by all, kind of living very much on the fringes of society uh, the subaltern the lowest of the low on the uh, totem pole in most kind of disc societies it would seem below trolls or beagle or you know dwarves or anything else like that 
or even orcs like Mr. Nut, it seems. Um, although perhaps not, because I think Nut's cover story was that he was a goblin. Anyway, that's unimportant for this book. But once in the cave, Vimes can see w- w- well in the darkness because he has the summoning dark from Tud is still kind of planted in his head. Almost like a, I suppose, a... Um, it's not quite possession because he's still Vimes is still in full possession of his own faculties, but it, it's like this supernatural entity that is living within him. So he discovers this. Uh, the, well, he doesn't discover. He's led to the corpse of this this goblin girl. The goblins there urge him to get justice for her. Somewhere along the line, he finds out there was a. It's kind of allusions to like a massacre of goblins or a mass kidnapping that that happened uh, recently, and he resolves to get to the bottom of that. Around this period, too, he makes the acquaintance of Miss Felicity Beadle, who's the mm. woman who wrote The uh, the World of Pooh, which is a children's <laughs> book Young Sam is, is positively obsessed mm. by. But she's sort of a goblins' rights activist, like her mother was raised by goblins, and she, in turn, is trying to raise some of the younger goblins, particularly the young females, to, I suppose, not so much to fully integrate into human society, but to give equip them with the skills by which to gain uh, respect and 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 agency within a largely human run society mm. uh, back in Ankh-Morpork Sergeant Colon is sort of almost under possession from goblins while this pot is stuck to his hands he's having these dreams he's sort of talking in goblin feverishly to himself so Angua and Carrot visit Harry King's um, what's the technical term for like tannery Basically, uh, where, where, where they turn all, all, all like the piss and stuff into. I suppose you know, it would be a, put, put he, he supply use. he supplies all these things to tanneries. I think it's, I think he he's mentioned he alludes to himself as being like a dunny proprietor or something along those lines, something like that, something very pratchet 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 pratchetian pratchetian. Yeah. Um, so yeah, they uh, they make a visit to Larry King and he. Uh, he basically introduces them to his one of the goblins in his employ, whose name escapes me at the moment. Can you help me out there? Oh, um, he he, yeah, he, he has changes a goblin his name, name, which is something like yeah, like like sacred wind blowing or something. But his oh, B- Billy Slick is his. That was it. Name yes, yeah. They ask uh, Billy to introduce them to his grandmother, who can actually speak, you know, the old goblin tongue and might be able to actually help them in their situation. Because Billy himself is a city goblin whose uh, knowledge of traditional of goblin traditions might not be as clear cut as someone who is more of more pure goblin blood, I suppose you might say. And that's something that we'll probably come back to later as well as being quite interesting. But the grandmother, they barter as some of it's like brandy or something isn't brandy it? or something like that and basically the grandmother tells them all about the tears the ugu pots and uh the tears of the soul i think is the name of this particular kind of ugu pot that colon has and basically the idea behind it is when a goblin is forced to eat her young for to stave off starvation or any other desperate desperate reasons, then the tears that she sheds for her child are shed into this pot. So, in a sense, the tears of the soul. That's is that what I said? Sorry. Yeah. It is, yeah. Sorry. <laughs> Beg your pardon. Um, so yeah, essentially, the pot in a way is like the essence of this uh, goblin child in in a certain sense. 
colon by touching this pot has kind of in a very abstract sort of sense become this undead not you know, I don't know if you even call it undead but you come I this think, like yeah I think it's sort of implied like he's become the host for the, the soul of the yeah. you know the child and all the, the sorrows that were poured into the making mm. of that pot so yeah essentially they need to get coal into like a goblin cave to sort this problem out but this is something that doesn't get addressed or doesn't get resolved until the end of the book so in plot number A back to where uh, Vimes is they get a lead that a Mr. Flutter, who is... He's in the business of turkeys, I think it was. Yeah, yeah. Um, but he... It's a, Vimes learns from the barkeep that he is also uh, known for smuggling into the countryside as well. And also that he may have had something to do with the big goblin massacre back in the day. So Vimes and a... God, I've forgotten his name now. Feeney. Uh, Feeney. Officer Feeney. They go to visit Mr. Flutter. And while... They catch him off guard and they basically take him prisoner. Um, they discover that there is a load of not only um, tobacco in the barrels that he's smuggling, there's also a lot of troll drugs, like highly illegal uh, troll uh, narcotics. That Mac pipes, clarky candle, cake, mm, all the drugs. All the worst ones. And on top of that, uh, Vimes goes into the cellar where he keeps these barrels. And because, again, he is... He has an understanding with the summoning dark. Uh, he learns exactly what happened on the hill the night that he was supposed to meet Jethro Jefferson and discovers that a young girl was killed by not Mr. Flutter, but a man named uh, Stratford. Stratford, thank you. And apparently Flutter was there, but he tried to prevent Stratford from actually killing the girl. He apparently, they were under orders by the... Um, countryside uh, magistrate to kill this girl and Flutter was against it but Stratford apparently took it in his stride so at this point forward they know, now know that Stratford is the man they're looking for to ultimately get the main perpetrator who's behind all these crimes so what happens then Colin? Early on Vimes encounters old Lord Rust who we know from like Jingo and, and uh, Nightwatch and a few other books who he's now kind of older and and more infirm and he sort of cryptically warns Vimes away from causing trouble and and we find out in that conversation with Flutter that Rust's son, uh, Graved Rust is sort of the one running the show for this smuggling and gobbling and slaving uh, business, albeit with the the, the say-so and the support of all of the other local dignitaries to, who, who make up this, this board of magistrates that you, that you mentioned. Bimes and Upshot, then I, I, I was ha- I'm hazy on this, remember that I know, like, around this point, they they go, like, they end up on, on a boat that they know, the wonderful Fanny, a riverboat mm. on Old Treachery, that they know is smuggling the... Uh, human trafficking goblin trafficking trafficking the goblins and the the smuggled drugs away they end up at a boat they end up but i can't remember what what it is that triggers them going in the boat like a, a because they don't go immediately from their encounter with flutter to the yeah boat there's a like few that. things that are just a few little things that happen before that one thing these are just little uh yeah, yeah. substantial uh, uh insubstantial details but significant uh, later on one thing that happens is uh Vimes goes to visit Miss Beadle for more information previously and he hears a young goblin who goes by the name Tears of the Mushroom playing the harp and Vimes 
is so absolutely entranced by this music. Uh, he's convinced it's the best music he's ever heard in his entire life. So he runs back to uh, the manor to get Sybil and his son and immediately brings them back to the cottage just to hear this music because it's so wonderful. And uh, this At uh, this point, um, Sybil kind of grants uh, Vine's permission to pursue this crime, whereas before she was like, enjoy your holiday, stop looking for trouble. But now, because she knows goblins were murdered and she has been so entranced by uh, the music that is played by Tears of the Mushroom, she basically gives him the go-ahead to absolutely pursue uh, his line of questioning. As well as this, Officer Feeney Upshot, while Mr. Flutter is uh, his prisoner, a group of people have gathered... Oh, I'm trying to remember why now. There's a mob outside his, the the jail, and I'm trying to remember exactly what it is they're protesting. Yeah, I know. It's it's kind of a turning point for him, where, like, like yeah, he, he thinks they're threatening his ma, and he, you know, shouts them down, and Vimes kind of thinks... Oh, he's beginning to gain a bit of, you know, a bit of gumption and a bit of um, confidence as as a copper. But you're right, I'm hazy memory wise on like why they're there, why they want to. I, I know there's a general, there's a general feeling because that runs throughout the go- book that because goblins are so almost universally regarded as vermin, there's a lot of like people dismissing Vimes's investigations as like, oh, why are you kicking up so much trouble over goblins or should they steal everything anyway? Like, who cares what happens to them? Who Like, it was only goblins. It isn't like killing people, you know? But I don't, I don't think that's why they're protesting. I, the first if place. I remember right, they're angry at Mr. Flutter over something. They're trying to get to him. Um, it might be down to the smuggling of like troll narcotics or something, or maybe it's the magistrates who have sent who have like stirred up this mob. To yeah, keep there's quiet. definitely that because they're they're uh, they have a kind of henchman there, but I can't remember what the grounds the people have been stirred up on. In any case, this we then pivot to the Vimes and Feeney going aboard the the wonderful Fanny to stop. Very the very quickly, if I could just stop you right there, there's one uh, significant thing that happens before that is uh, Stinky gets appointed as a policeman under oh, Feeney's yeah. uh, employ, which again becomes significant on top of the uh, the wonderful Fanny. So this is what this is kind of the big set piece of the entire book, and it's probably the main thing that I remembered the first time that I read the book is what happens above. You the remember the wonderful Fanny? It really stuck out in your head. Well, I was a teenager. So um, anyway, so when, when they're on the river, so they they know that there is a whole host of goblins aboard the wonderful Fanny being transported. Uh, and basically, they Vimes has uh, prior knowledge. And I think this comes from... Uh, I think this comes from something that uh, Flutter said. He knows that uh, the goblins are being transported to work in Hwandaland on like these farms plantations. or something plantations yeah he they go to stop this riverboat anyway to try and like stop the goblins being transported but unfortunately there's a terrible storm going on at the moment and there's something on old treachery known as a swell so basically when so much debris is being like so much water is being stopped by debris that has been caught near the st- start of the river and like the water the pressure dam can, slam is what they call it isn't dam it? slam it's, yes yeah, thank you the water builds up behind this a natural dam that accrues as you're saying from from just debris getting cut in the river eventually breaks that so then you get this enormous powerful surge of water and debris shooting down the uh or or, or up like don't know how rivers work <laughs> <laughs> the one across the road from me just says all oh, shopping trolleys in it i generally try to avoid it <laughs> god help us if there's ever a dam slam in that mm. but um 
so so throughout the whole scene on the boat, we kind of know where there's a certain sense of racing against the clock. Because sooner or later, this is going to happen, and all hell is going to break loose. Vimes frees the uh, the wife and daughter of the the captain of the boat, who like were is sort of kind of at, at gunpoint at the tiller. The chap he frees them from just seems to be a hapless henchman, but then he later reveals that he is in fact Stratford. Tries to get the one, one up on Vimes, they fight. The damn slam happens. There's also at, at a point when when Vimes has fought off Stratford, he, he knows he kind of hasn't fully finished off yet, but but he, he manages to send him on the run. He then has to run back because essentially this boat is sort of it's like towing these barges, and the barges are are where the cargo is, and the cargo being the goblins, and one of the crew of the boat wants to cut off the barges so they'll move faster into Damslam, just essentially abandoning the uh, goblins on board to death. So Vimes has to go and ensure that doesn't happen. The Damslam occurs; they're all utterly wrecked. They wake up and querm, but thankfully everyone is safe. So at this point, then, Vimes realises they haven't caught Stratford. So they go on another boat called the, it's the Roberta E. Biscuit back up That's the, it, yeah, yeah. Yeah, where, where it all seems to be, everything seems to be rosy. Vimes has a drink named after him. His family's there. It's all lovely. Uh, but Stratford's also there, and he tries to sneak up at him, and Vimes gets to jump at him, and yeah. Yeah, just before, before that happens, before they get on the Robert E. Biscuit, there's another ship that, like... Uh, the goblins have been transported to and uh so they have to chase after that before they uh go back to basically back to Sybil and his son so he goes to that and that's where he finds Jethro Jefferson who has been missing this entire time oh yes yeah, yeah and Jethro I think he he gets into a little bit of a scrap with um one of the members of the crew who treated him very badly, but he's willing to drop all charges so long as he can have a bit of a scrap with this person and show him what's what, basically. When they get back to the the original... I forget the name, the holiday location that they're in, this very Pride and Prejudice location. Is there a name yeah, on it? Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm not sure. I mean, there must be, but uh, <laughs> what, what a fucking elementary thing for us to be We'll call forgetting. it the Shire for now because it's a very <laughs> Shire-esque Shire. type place. But anyway, when they get back to the Shire... Jethro is also appointed as a um, member of the police, the the watch, uh, the new watch, which basically seems to be happening there. And once they are there, sorry, that's when, yes, they go aboard the boat. That's when Stratford tries to kill Vimes' son. But Vimes, he knows that he's coming, so he manages to stop him. Um, he gets, he gets caught and arrested but the cart that is transporting him back to Agmorpork kind of topples over uh, due to an accident so he gets away again but Willikins pursues him and eventually kills him when Vimes awakes from the uh, the dam slam as well he finds wee mad Arthur who was sent on a hawk to to find a, a goblin cave and, and he found these um, goblin plantations he tells Vimes about Colin being sick and that they need to find a goblin cave so Colin tells uh, Arthur to bring, or sorry, Vimes tells Arthur to bring Colin to to <laughs> the Shire or whatever we're calling this. It actually this it actually is the Shires, believe it or not. I just oh, looked really? it up. Okay. It's the Shires. That's why I was, <laughs> had the Shire in my head. <laughs> um, so so that he can bring him to the to the Goblin Cave. He knows that that he's been inside, and, and Colin is kind of cured of that. Our main climax is kind of this scene cutting between. Vimes rounding up the local aristocrats who organised uh, the smuggling and the goblin trafficking 
intercut, as it were, to, to borrow filmic language, with Sybil organising this concert in the Ankh-Morpork Park Opera House of mm. Tears of the Mushroom on the harp. So you kind of have this two-pronged approach from, from the two of them towards fighting the good fight, as it were, for goblin rights. So on the one hand, they're kind of, you know, uh, it's it's the the iron hand on the velvet glove Vimes is, is arresting and punishing the, the, the captors and the people who initiated this um, slavery. And Sybil is trying to win society at large over to the idea that, that goblins are sentient beings worthy of, of respect and legal rights. In, in the end of it then, with a veterinary tells Vimes that he, he probably won't be able to try successfully try a lot of the people involved with the smuggling because it's all, like goblins hadn't got any legal rights and you had backdate laws but he does tell him that his efforts haven't been in vain because they are now introducing laws to recognize the, the rights of goblins as uh, as people I suppose for, for want of a better term that's about it I think we we end with like a, a little kind of bit about Vimes going back on a a nice calm holiday with his family um, mm. and Shane yeah so um before we really get into it i think one thing we should probably highlight an issue that this book has and it's probably became apparent when we were trying to recount it is that i feel like despite the fact that i actually enjoyed this book a lot more than i remember the first time around i remember i had i thought it was a massive downgrade compared to earlier ones but what i think the issue was not so much that it was a downgrade, it just goes in a very different direction than what the previous watch books do. And I think the main issue I had with back then, and it sort of holds true here, is that there are it's not as exciting as previous books. Like it's not by any means a bad book. There's a lot of things in this book that I really, really like, but because it's not as exciting, as you can see, a lot of details we had we were kind of struggling to remember because just it's not quite as engaging. But there are still some great things to talk about there. I just want to let it be known front and center that I really enjoyed this like a lot more than I did the last time, and I still think that there's a lot of really good stuff in here. Although, again, like most of the books on this list, it's not without its issues. What about you, Colin? What did you think of it? I sort of somewhat similar to yourself. I think I read it soon after it, it came out initially and wasn't mad about it at the time and found a lot more to enjoy in it this time around it didn't shake me from my belief that Nightwatch should have been the last mm. if not the last watch book certainly the last Vimes book and you mm. know the, the rest of them uh, Todd and, and stuff feel like returning a lot of water and I suppose we'll, we'll, we'll get to it in a bit but I, I think in many ways he's sort of the biggest problem with this book I think there's a lot of cool ideas in it and it, a lot that a, a lot um that I didn't notice first time around and some that are dealt with a bit more deftly than Pratchett has been dealing with with, with complex issues in in other recent books. I mean, I I think what he's attempting to do is something like what we saw with Masquerade, where you have the climax prior to that of Lords and Ladies, and then rather than try and take, you know, rather than try and escalate things from there with with the longer witches, Mm. because you really can't, he instead takes a step to the side and it becomes this, you know, culture clash of these little country witches in the big city and the the actual sort of villain is deliberately a lot less formidable than, than mm-hmm. the Queen of the Elves was in Lords and Ladies. And I feel what we're getting like that is something here, like that it isn't so much the um villains that are a particular uh, headache for, for Vimes and the others, as it is it's this like sidestep into he's in the country, he's in a different environment. 
finding ways of dealing with with issues in that environment that have to be adapted for it that you know he can't quite go the, the same way as he did in, in the, the city and there's, there's fascinating bits there some of it i think isn't as well articulated as as other bits but uh, there, there's a lot to like certainly like like yourself i was sort of pleasantly surprised having having read it once before years and years ago yeah absolutely i think yeah right there is a lot to like about it and like you said there's just some bits that aren't really capitalized on like the idea of vimes in a countryside location there's little fun bits where you can see him like you know struggling with oh here's something he's never had to deal with before like um for example, when he has to ride a horse to chase after the wonderful Fanny, it's not something he's ever had to deal with before uh, now. And that's a nice little bit. But there's so many sections in the book where he's just in the countryside and it doesn't really... The only difference between this and like a moment when he's like in the watch is he's not surrounded by other watchmen and it's kind of less interesting you know, there's not as much going on. I, I think, t- to be honest, one of the more interesting bits is like, uh, and it's not as well, so it's not gone into as much depth I would have liked, as, is this him having to manage the dual roles of, like, what he wants to do as a policeman and an investigator? He, or dual roles, three roles, really. His policeman investigator, his, like, father and husband, and then his role as sort of the local lord now. Like, you have that bit mm. where... Willie Kins is kind of telling him about all this mad stuff that the other ones got up to, like these sort of local characters. And Vimes is kind of horrified and disgusted and thinking like, you know, what a like rich, self-indulgent dope. But Willie Kins is sort of emphasizing, him, no, no, in these small places, they want a big character like that. And then you see that when Vimes is in the pub and he's really conscious of how he acts in the sense of buying drinks forever and the way he act, like the way he has to react to Jeff Jethro's aggression and um, not as a copper but as kind of a local lord who like he then when he, he's in the scrap with him he kind of tells him like okay you you know you get in a few hits on me here and we'll call it a draw this will be a big story for everyone and I think that part is interesting it kind of goes by the wayside once the investigation mm. proper starts like he never really has to uttered on when he's with Feeney's mother and he kind of like wins her yeah, over yeah. by acting really uh, gracious and I suppose jukely, um, if, if that's a if that's probably a, a not really a, a proper word, but you get the the idea of what what I mean. Other than that, we don't really have to see him managing these roles at all. And I think that could have been one of the more interesting parts about it because the more in like. We we talked before with the, the struggle with Vimes is you begin with him as this like washed up character that's sort of a beleaguered underdog like he's the head al- alcohol alcoholic head of a you know wretched institution that isn't respected at all and he begins to kind of like claw his way to the top and the books as they go on have to find ways of still making him feel. If not wholly like an underdog, but at least someone we can kind of get behind on someone who is punching down, uh, which is certainly uh, when you're reading about like any kind of like well-equipped police force in 2021 is is a a difficult thing to get around. Not that that's something perhaps he wouldn't have been so conscious of when he was writing these books, but he would have been conscious of Vimes is getting like wealthy and powerful. He's married the richest woman in Ankh-Morpork. He gets like knighted. He becomes a duke. How do you do all this? How do you kind of reward him and give us those feel good moments while also still making, you know, not stacking the deck in his favor. So we have stuff like 
Fida Clay, he's struggling to kind of make his way in high society while attempting to solve this crime. Like he's kind of, you know, ping ponging between these social affairs and the crime. And Jingo, it, like it's funny because Jingo is is one of the ones who felt was less successful in its just general narrative messiness. But I do think it does an interesting job with Vimes, where it's like you you have a situation in the war that is much more suited to his role as a, you know, as a, as a duke, as an aristocrat, as a big figure in the Ankh-Morpork nobility, which he sort of takes advantage of when he kind of forms his own regiment. But largely, he's trying to solve it as a policeman. He's trying to reduce war to a crime. Mm. And we get that great bit where he arrests both generals, but ultimately it's unsuccessful. And ultimately, it's much more veterinary that solves that with diplomacy. And Vimes just buys a little time, if anything. Likewise, then, in The Fifth Elephant, He's not only taken out of his comfort zone from Mike Morpork to Uberwald, but he's in a you know situation where he kind of has to be a diplomat rather than a copper because his like he has no authority as a copper, but he's not very comfortable in that situation. And again, ultimately, while he does a lot, it's really like the likes of Sybil, Lady Margalotta, and the Low King that resolve the big issues of that book, while Vimes kind of addresses the more human scaled justice and injustice kind of parts of it and then of course Nightwatch he's, he's stripped of power and he almost functions as a kind of anti-protagonist in Nightwatch he's defined by his inability to change anything and it's like how how much good can he do when it, when he's sort of in a situation where by the definition of it he can't change anything and here he's a fish out of water but he's in his element trying to solve a mystery and he really doesn't seem too unsettled by the setting. I mean, he literally mm. owns most of the setting as comes yeah, up a lot. Like, yeah. you know, he, he owns the land and so on. So it's hard not to feel like he's punching down with any of his, in any of his confrontations. It's, it doesn't really, it all feels a bit too easy for him. You know, he doesn't mm. really feel pulled and stretched between these different roles like he did in some of the other books. And, He's just less interesting as a consequence. Like I, I think that scene with with Jetro is an interesting one, where you know, on on the one hand, I kind of like the idea where Vimes is looking at him and thinking, "I was you ten years ago." Like this anti aristocracy stuff is exactly what Vimes was saying to Sham Harga back in Guards Guards when they were bringing in the fake king to that had apparently slain the dragon. You know, he was uh, very very similar voicing very similar complaints to Jetro. So I like that he's kind of felt like sort of just pissed off as anyone would be by this fella getting aggressive with him but also thinking well I thought the exact same way and I like that he sort of has to use the fight to play up to this like larger than life local lord image that Willikins has, has told him about um, and I like that when Jetro becomes a policeman he doesn't actually lose like it isn't like he's learned a lesson and is like you know what Vimes you're alright he's still like uh, you're a fucking knob. I don't trust you. <laughs> and Vimes, yeah. Vimes is essentially like, well, fair enough, you know. But like that, like that's a copper's brain if I ever heard one. So I like all of that. But like the deck is so stacked, like it, right, you know, in the sense of there's a huge power imbalance. Both in the sense of like Vimes is literally Jetro's landlord. Like when, when mm. they're gonna fight, Jetro has to say to him like, "Well, you got to promise not to essentially like evict and arrest my mum." because of what's going to go on here we know Vimes isn't going to do that but it sets up the fact that like you know this fight can can never be a fair one and even though Jetro's a big strapping blacksmith we're like continually assured in Vimes' inner monologue that like ah no like I'm a tough city boy I've been in more fights than he ever has I can take him like sizing him up Jetro is so clearly unsettled by like the Vimes's calm and assurance before the fight that like the decks are, are stacked completely in Vimes's favour. Then in the fight, 
Vimes kind of gets him down and sort of like browbeats him and rants him at like, you know, like, what the fuck do you, are you doing? Who do you think you are? You know, but by that time, any kind of wish fulfillment, vicarious pleasure, or we might have got out of seeing Vimes just give a, you know, a local bully his comeuppance have dissipated. We get Vimes after the fight, like, lentily chewing him out, like twice, twice actually, sorry, during the fight and after it, just, a, you know, cop on, Get your act together. What are you doing? And then we get Willikins like chewing him out and threatening him for not respecting Vimes, and it's all just like, <laughs> so, like so, in a manner that's like frankly psychotic. Like he just holds a stiletto <laughs> to his throat and it's like, "I'll kill you if <laughs> you don't really like my boss." You know, and it's just like, what? Why do we need this at this point? You know, like we've gotten. Like we're we're like, most readers are kind of on Vimes' side. He's the protagonist. He's the guy we know. This fella comes up to him. He's just trying to start on him at a pub. Most of us have been there, so we're like, you know, you 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 do kind of want that like vicarious pleasure moment of like, yeah, yeah. Let's see, let's see Vimes teach this guy a lesson. But as I said, it's sort of like rendered a little more muddy by how they're 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 differing social statuses by the fact that Vimes makes it so clear he can like mm. your man poses no threat to him physically even though he's a big lad and then just like again and again he's told like you are wrong for you know mm. fighting Vimes in any way it's just so oh yeah it's just so imbalanced I suppose as a scene and it's it's kind of indicative I think of the problems with the way Vimes is written in this book Mm, yeah, it is. It is a massive left turn compared to what we've seen before. I think I it like when you're saying it now, it it kind of bothering me as I'm thinking about it. When I was reading it, it didn't really bother me as much because in my mind, the way I was reading it as like I I remember when I read it first, I didn't really like the book because it just wasn't exactly what I wanted, which was like oh the character of Vimes like developing in interesting ways. But as you said before, that like Nightwatch should have been the last book, and I'm in agreement with you. I think like that was like the ultimate conclusion of Vimes's character, where he fully becomes who he is. Thud was kind of just meandering, and this one even more so, I would argue actually. But I think the reason it works for me not perfectly but I'm kind of on board with it is because it kind of goes off into this uh Poirot-esque uh, murder she wrote kind of episode sort of mystery thing where like it isn't so much about like the development of the character it's just like here here's the mystery of the week I wonder how it's going to be solved you know and I'm on board with that but the only issue I have with it is the mystery itself isn't that compelling yeah, there's no mystery, really. I mean, I, I see what you mean, because it's certainly got the tone and setting of that sort of mm. genteel countryside mystery, very uh, Poirot, Miss Marple. But, like, if if you... Like, I, I, I love me some Poirot, and in those books, you have the mystery set up, uh, in most of them, occasionally she subverts the formula, but, you know, you, you have the... Whatever the crime is, you usually a murder... And then you have all these characters introduced, so you know as a reader, like, mm. okay, one of them is behind this, who is it? We have the investigation process where, you know, a few red herrings. And here, I suppose the mystery at first is what it is that has happened, because Vimes knows there's yeah. something up. He knows people are acting suspicious. He doesn't know what it is. Once he's discovered the, the death of the goblins, we know it's the local, we know it's Rust's son. Like, Rust has already yeah, yeah, yeah. warmed Vimes problem, away like, from so. things. You know, it's kind of set up that they're the only ones who really could be doing something like that here. Like, you know, mm. some something on that scale. It's not like Jetro or Jiminy the Barman or anything like that is going to be... So, like, I think the only remaining mystery then is, I suppose, what have they done with the goblins? But we 
that that isn't enormously compelling because we, we kind of no, know where yeah. we're going in narrative terms of well, Vimes is going to have to try and rescue them. So mm. you know, and, and we know we've already established with what, what's quite a well done and moving scene of Vimes being led to the corpse of the the goblin girl in, in the cave. Like we we already have been told as readers and, and well, have been told as makes it seem more didactic than than uh, I, I mean it to. But we're, we're informed. We, we've had it. Like. Yeah, yeah, we, we've had it articulated to us the, the horror of this crime so mm-hmm. w- whatever it is is happening w- with the goblins isn't so much a mystery in the sense of it's not going to make us feel any more or less angry about the injustice that's going on here mm. and i think maybe at a certain point the only mystery becomes like how many people are in on this thing like mm. the, you know say like the butler at the sybil's family manor silver initially seems quite a kind of obsequious, unctuous character. He wasn't something someone I had remembered from my first read, but when you see him kind of butting heads with Vimes and Willikins, I was thinking, oh, is he going to be in on the, you know, on the, on the crime? Yeah. Is Beanie in some kind of, like, unknowing way, like, I've been found to have, like, assisted with this without really realising it? But there's not, there's not really, uh, like, a whole lot to there. So it has the tone and setting of those, like, you know genteel countryside with a dark secret murder mysteries but none of the actual intricately plotted and structured stuff that makes them compelling in in you know and reading along and seeing that mystery be unraveled yeah i think it's like <laughs> the, the best way i can describe it is like it's like you're watching a rerun of one of those you know like where you already know all the answers but it's like just something you almost want like I don't know about you, but when I was growing up, like what would always happen like on a Saturday or Sunday morning is like you'd have like a nice like uh, Irish breakfast and like this would just be on in the background and you kind of half be paying attention to it while also like having a discussion like with your family or whatever or your friends and then like it's it's just it's inconsequential. It doesn't really matter how it's going. It's just kind of there for like the quite calming, soothing and overall nice background noise you know and that's kind of the way i'm viewing this and i kind of see what terry pratchett was going for with that i don't think he was that successful though like i mean there is there there, there's novel concepts at play here but i very few of them are really capitalized like there's bits that i like like i think the set piece with the the wonderful fanny on old treachery is really good i really enjoy that it's like the one bit that i always remember from this book because i just think it's actually a well put together set piece and although the um like this this metaphor that he's putting into play with uh goblins and like the plantations and like general slavery like in on the american plantations it's kind of heavy-handed and like it's I don't really see what the point of it was because this kind of he he's tackled racism in previous books in what I think is much more interesting ways. I do think the whole idea of like uh, backdating laws and making uh, criminals pay for crimes that they committed before they were actually crimes is kind of an interesting one. But this is only introduced at the very end, and it's kind of just something for us to ponder on more than anything else. So like that doesn't really like save the book per se it's uh and like again the fish out of water thing it's it's got fun moments but again none of it is really capitalized on i i think for me what what works with the goblin side of it and i certainly agree with you that it is quite heavy-handed and there's a feeling that he has done like if you're to group together all the books that tackle you know issues of race and prejudice there, there's certainly plenty of them that, that have done it better than this. I think the sort of 
idea of like cultural integration and homogenization is something that comes up here that hasn't really come up before. I think it came up briefly when Anua and Cheery are talking and Anua says about like 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 she like Cheery's sort of envious that Anua is openly a, a woman in a way that Cheery is a dwarf uh, mm. can't be and Anua says, Well yeah I am but I kinda have to act like a lad. Like I'm mm. allowed to be a woman so long as I'm a lad. And I think there's something here that Anua actually thinks when they visit Billy Slick and you know, he's very contemptuous of, of goblin uh, heritage and so on. You know, in a way that, like, again, parallels, I said, always be wary of reaching for one-to-one parallels, but you like to see how this stuff echoes against real history and makes it feel mm-hmm. more substantial in that way. Like, I'm thinking, like, something like, say, post-famine in Ireland, how the Irish language declined usually because people just saw it as, like, the language of poverty and that, you know, if you want to mm. get work either in Dublin or big cities or, you know, abroad, you, you learned English, so you had families who had spoken Irish for generations teaching their children English and, and that chain was broken, you know? Mm-hmm. So like that that idea where he feels he has to kind of abandon all his goblinness, all of that's junk, forget about it. And Angu is thinking that Ankh-Morfork is a melting pot, but it all melts the same way. Like everyone can be here so long as they kind of act human, you know, so long as they sort of assimilate into the host culture and then by, by proxy give up a lot of their traditional culture. And Vime mm-hmm. says that discussion with Felicity Beadle about like he says something like oh you're teaching them how to be good citizens and she gets very upset and it's like no I'm not teaching them how to be little humans I'm teaching Mm. them how to be better goblins I do think there is something that isn't really dealt with there like and I I really like that moment because it is like the one moment in the book where Vimes is seen to get something wrong and kind of admits it and and as I'll go on later and I've already mentioned I think the kind of invincibility of, of Vimes in this in every respect makes for a lack of tension that, that hurts the book. So I like that a lot. I do think there is a, more of an argument to be had about like to what extent can you as a human in uh, Miss Beadle, even a human who was whose mother was raised by goblins, like to what extent can you presume to you know, like that, like, no, I'm definitely getting the balance right in that, like, I'm teaching them in a way that isn't yeah. going to get rid of mm. any of their goblin heritage and is just going to teach them. You, you know what I mean? Like, she rails mm. against this idea that she's humanizing them in any way, but just by definition, by teaching them at all, she's kind of humanizing yeah. them. But that's, I'm, I'm not trying to kind of catch her out in this way because I think it's an insoluble argument. And if you take it to an extreme, you just never help anyone. You know, you're like, mm-hmm. oh, well, I wouldn't want to kind of like sully the purity of this ethnic sexual whatever minority mm. by by intervening myself so i'll just sit over here and not do anything like obviously you don't want to promote that kind of idea mm. but i do think it is an interesting discussion to be had where for her or for, for anyone involved how far in can she actually work, go yeah like, yeah, yeah actually like, like teaching someone like before she's suddenly like just appropriating like the, the goblin culture like to not meet her own needs but you know what i mean like kind of like like she's saying that she doesn't want to bring them into like uh, human culture just like educate them enough in such a way that they can work side by side but like she's from a very privileged position and I just yeah it's uh it's troublesome and like uh like you said it's it's more than anything it's just an interesting thing to think about uh it's something I think should have been dealt with it's funny there's a lot of bits in this book that are really interesting but they aren't really the focus like the main focus is like the very very heavy-handed stuff which go so far as having like plantations in Hwandaland that even has like wee mad Arthur dropping in for a w- brief section to kind of see the slavers beating them all up and like the piles of dead bodies which I feel like should have been grimmer like I feel like that should have been a much darker moment in it I, I, I 
think it's kind of reasonably well managed in that moment. Albeit, it's true we Matt Arthur, who's like inherently a comic character. Like you know, I know I know a lot of the Discworld, like all virtually all the Discworld characters can kind of pivot between humor and like you know seriousness. But like someone like him, like a side character to watch. Virtually everything he's used for up until this point has been a joke. I mean, so the whole thing there of... is like, yeah, when he gets there, it's like, we all know this is going to end up with a massive punch-up as soon as he encounters anybody. So, like, it's... Yeah. I feel yeah, like so that could have been for an handled a bit better. Fit. Yeah, like, to have mm. him being the one. I think it's... Uh, uh, but I think at least there is this attempt at, like... You know, once he's kind of overcome the slavers, it's it's tonally consistent and he's sort of horrified by mm. what he's seeing. It's quite restrained in that he doesn't really say what he's seeing, but he implies he's kind of mercy killing some of them. And it's left in our mm. imagination to like what state they're in, which I think is well done. I think when we get on the, the wonderful Fanny and you have all the goblins locked up, it's mm. like, like that's in, in some ways a more powerful scene. It comes at a more climactic no, a point in the novel. It's with characters like Vimes and Feeney who are like generally what we're allowed to see them is more serious, but that's kind of a bit tonally up and down because then like you have stuff like we get that, like, like this horrifying mental picture of, of like a coffin ship, you know, like them all just in these tiny cages. Mm. Some of them literally having died there. And then a moment later, like, like, and, and this is otherwise an aspect of Feeney. I liked where we see him growing in confidence. And part of that growing in confidence is learning to look at Vimes as a person and not as this heroic super cop God mm. figure. So we go from, when they get on the horses and Vimes is really uncomfortable on the horse, but Feeney's thinking, oh, you're a great horseman, you know, like uh, like you were used to this in Coombe Valley and so on, to the point where once they're on the boat, he kind of realises, this lad doesn't know shit about boating. I do. Mm. <laughs> so I've kind of got to, even though he's the superior, I've got to like take charge to the extent of sending him straight and making sure he doesn't do anything to hurt himself or others. And he's kind of making these dry comments about Vimes's, you know, ignorance of, of, uh, of boating, which is a development I like, uh, and again, g- given that, like, a big, uh, I suppose, a big issue I have with this book is the way Vimes is sort of put up on this pedestal. I like that, like, we see this character grow and progress, and part of that is learning to, you know, not unadulterate, completely hero-worship Vimes. But it comes at a time where we've just seen this horrifying scene of all the goblins, like, dead and in cages and dying, and then they're sort of doing this little variable sparring about, like, not you know are they called nautical terms when it's on a boat? Again, this is this is my <laughs> ignorance here. But you, you know what I mean. Like it's sort of um, there's a like there's a weird tonal inconsistency there. And likewise with um, when when like Stinky is there and he's kind of making these wry cryptic observations. That seems kind of out of, out of place when we've just encountered the horror of what's been inflicted on on these people. You know. And then when they encounter Mrs. Silito, the the boat captain's wife, who I get is meant to be a um, quite a, a a woman of of poise and intelligence and competence. Like Vimes explicitly compares her to Sybil. It's made clear that like you know even though she's a, a gunpoint, well, a crossbow point, she knows more about the boat than any of the people who like any of the you know pirates, and she's kind of contemptuous of their lack of knowledge. But her just complete poise and, and verboseness, like she just goes on and on for paragraph for really undercuts the tension we're having of like, they're on this boat, there's about to be a storm, There's her husband is still like, presumably like at gunpoint or at crossbow point, I keep slipping into that, you know, at the tiller. We've just found a load of like, you know, dead and dying goblins, this horrific 
horrific scene and suddenly like she's acting very calm Vimes is acting calm and tonally all over the place that kind of undercuts both the, the horror of what has happened to these goblins and just the general tension of that scene as this you know race against the clock with these vicious killers and slavers and so on Mm, yeah no you are right actually i hadn't really thought of that it it is kind of a down i i do feel like that section is a bit of the exception because i do really like um the bit where they get onto the boat where they're like running on the logs that whole section and um oh yeah like i i like a lot of that scene too um it, like it's yeah, probably just I just that, been, bit. that that kind of it's not quite for for all i like it it's not quite as effective as it could have been because you just have these mm. bits that undercut the tension yeah yeah there's um there's a lot of bit it's it's such a weird book in that like i did i did come out of this i did like it it's just that but maybe this might just be because it's better than i remember like uh, i had found more to enjoy there was little bits uh, and again because because we do this we tend to be looking out for things that kind of jump out as like uh, good discussion points i think the main the main issue that i feel with this like and going back to it again is just that the focus is all wrong that it's on this really heavy-handed like racial allegory thing but like there's other really interesting bits at play that get almost no focus whatsoever like one thing i really really liked i love this a lot was uh, the whole concept of the ugu pots and um there's this argument that uh i think it's oh i think it's carrot and cheery are having this argument about uh pessimal a pessimal about like whether uh goblins eating their own children to save off starvation and they have this really, really interesting discussion on, like, is it ever justified? And, like, uh, well, why are they doing it in the first place? And, like, differences of culture and all this. And this is an absolutely fascinating bit in the book. And it's immediately disregarded after that. Like, it's never touched upon again. Like, it's... I, 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 I think maybe this parallel is very obvious. I'm not sure. But I found myself thinking of, like, you know, pr- uh, pro-choice and, like, uh, pro-life uh, arguments there. Like, uh, the idea of, like, at what point does a child become, um, at what point does a child become, like, you know, so important that it deserves a life independent of the mother? Like, I felt like with the goblin as a child, if the mother is going to die from starvation, obviously the child is going to die as well. So it makes complete logical sense from A.E. Pessnell's very cold calculating point of view to be like, well, of course, might as well consume the child and then there's the possibility to make another one. Whereas the others are absolutely horrified by that, but they have to concede that there is logic behind that. And, you know, it's just... All the arguments came flowing back, <laughs> you know. Mm. I, I must say, it didn't jump to mind immediately for me, but I can see, I can see what you mean about the the parallels there. I do like with that whole issue, though, that part of the ultimate... Uh, you know, by the end of the book, we're kind of uh, at a point where it seems the tide is turning and people are accepting goblins and are getting these new legal rights. Again, going back to that question of, of, of heritage and not just assimilating into the host culture, that that issue isn't resolved. You know, that it isn't a case of like, well, this practice is horrific. And if we're to really accept goblins as people, they've got to stop doing this, you know, mm. or equally where they're like, oh, this, you know, they are so right. I can't believe I ever judged a goblin for you know or or was horrified by this perfectly logical step like i kind of like the fact that it's left unsolved and and there's a sense of well it's their issue and it's it's you know theirs to be debated and like us kind of integrating them into society and, and giving them legal rights isn't contingent on them just kind of resolving all of their yeah issues and cultural complexities to our satisfaction 
Mm. But I think it's also significant that it's never really brought up in that discussion, or I'm not even sure if it's even brought up in the book. And this might be like a mistake on Terry Pratchett's part, or maybe it's intentional. I don't know. Tell me what you think. But the fact that it's never brought up, like why this is an issue that keeps cropping up, that like goblins keep finding themselves in positions of like you know states of starvation. So like oh, well, you know, I, it, I think it's 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 implicit that like because they're living on the fringes of society and have no rights and have no way to make money, make a living that they're, you know, they're just constantly on the, on the point of, of famine. Like they, a lot of the characters kind of allude to them stealing. And it's probably because like they, they have to, because they have no other way of, of getting food because they've just mm. been kind of driven away from like, I think stinky says at one point, like they used to occupy the kind of the wastelands that like no one else wanted. But now with the, you know, uh, progression, of technology of just like like you know humans and other races spreading out in general even those spaces aren't theirs anymore so they're being driven away from the, the spaces that they used to occupy and they just have no way of mm. yeah of, of kind of making anything to uh making a living of, of growing food or anything like that yeah that could be absolutely do you know what I thought of actually um, while I was doing this? Because I found it impossible. Well, not impossible. Like I was doing a bit of research on it and it just popped up. was um, Swift's A Modest Proposal. Oh, yeah. 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 <laughs> for those for those listening who don't know about it, uh, John Swift, he wrote A Modest Proposal way back during uh, the Irish famine. And it was supposed to be satire, but a lot of people in England weren't really in on the joke. But the idea was, he was saying that, oh, people in Ireland are starving, but they don't realise it doesn't have to be this way because they're having so many children. Why don't they just eat their children instead? In a nutshell. <laughs> and I just, uh, I found it interesting. Like, I felt like there's definitely a parallel to be said there. That, like, because, you know, it's addressing, you know, the difference between at that time seen like almost two separate races like the English and the Irish you know the highly distinguished English uh, aristocracy and like the very crude Irish uh, Irish race who just like you know on the fringes of society basically <laughs> well it's interesting that I think Swift's in a modest proposal it isn't that he advocates that the poor should eat their children he advocates that the rich should eat the poorest children and that they should buy them off it and this will be like like win-win because he's like saying hey, rich people, like, you get this great new delicacy, <laughs> new food, endless supply, and, you know, these, like, you know, dopey peasant fuckers who can't make any money any other way. You you know, you can, pay, you can like, throw them, uh, like, a few coppers as well. Yeah. And here we have the, the poor having to eat their own children as a consequence of being driven away from any resources and any rights by by the rich. Yeah, there's definitely something there. I'm kind of, I'm, I'm trying to think of what the significance of the, the difference is. If I remember right, though, isn't like I, I could be remembering this wrong. You, you have a much better memory than I do for these this kind of thing. But um, isn't the in the modest proposal initially he says like he proposes this as kind of an introduction, a solution to like uh, Irish starvation problem is like to eat their own children, and then he moves on say and in addition to this, like a, a further way to like you know uh, like this is kind of like a secondary option as well, selling it to uh, the English. As I remember, I think it's the main drive of it is to kind of pitch to them that, like, you can eat these kids. Mm, I think you're right. I just, I think I remember him saying, like, that, you know, the Irish can eat their own kids. Kind of as an introductory, like, you know, stepping stone towards that main idea. I think it, it's been, it's been college since I last read that. So I couldn't actually tell you if that's the way it is. But, um, yeah, yeah, I think there's something there. I think it's, 
the idea of it being satire, like, uh, I don't know. There's, I, there's something in that. I just, <laughs> what it is, though, exactly. It's interesting that um, A. Pessimal, the guy who's, like, totally cool, calculating, and, like, not driven at all by emotion, is the one who totally sees, like, the logic in that. So maybe that's supposed to be, like, representative <laughs> of, like, the, you know, English sensibilities, maybe. <laughs> Um, I don't know. I think it's like that. That he's obviously a, is an accountant, Disney, and they they kind of they um, allude multiple times to like even though he gets to go on patrol because as we saw from Todd, he really wants to be a, a hired man. He his main job in the watch is to be like their their kind of white collar crime wing where he you know goes through the numbers. So I think it's more just a comment on his mentality as just a like it's very much a utilitarian view. You know, the greatest good for the greatest number of people. Like. You know, we have mm-hmm. to him. It's like scenario A: mother doesn't eat child, and both mother mother dies, and then child dies with no one to care for it. Scenario B: mother eats child, child dies, but mother lives, and you know carries with her possibility of other child. Scenario B is the better one because there is one plus person alive. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think it's just very much a kind of like the hard numbers utilitarian philosophical uh, outlook to it, compared with the more emotive gut reactions of love cheery and carrot i wonder if there's anything to be said um for uh carrot and cheery even though they're like characters we've always rooted for because like they they've been like the heroes like uh for this series for such a long time maybe it might be shining a torch on the idea that like they've never really been in a situation quite as dire as the goblins have been in in that like they they're initially like so absolutely shocked by this idea of like eating their own young and to be fair absolutely like i mean we all would be at the idea but like it's just highlighting just how bad the plight the goblins have is the kind of problem with that is though i think it's trying to elicit like an emotive response more than anything else and it's just that's just something that i feel keeps falling over again and again in this book like it's like it's it's there but um it's 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 kind of a tricky metaphor because he's using goblins specifically and constantly like he's making reference to the idea of like these goblins as this race who are just absolutely like repugnant like you know i mean you've got a goblin named stinky like who's just like you know uh oh they're always stealing things and like they're really really ugly and like they smell terrible like uh etc etc and the main thrust from what i'm gathering i think like he terry pratchett is trying to counteract that just by using uh tears of the mushroom as kind of like the um the kind of argument against like you know goblins as like you know completely repugnant uh species who don't deserve the same rights that humans do so he's using tears in the mushroom as being like yeah but what if you know they're like humans basically so it's tricky i feel like it's it's a really on the nose kind of basic argument i feel you know well i i do think i i would agree with you now. i think that carrot and cheery's reactions are sort of indicative of privilege right that they're like horrified by something that is horrifying, as you say, like eating your young, but it's also a, a reaction that comes from a position of never having to be in that situation of absolute starvation. I never even have to contemplate being in it, you know, never imagining that it's, it's kind of a possibility that will that will occur in, in, with your lot in life. So, like, I, I think there's something in that, and, like, you know, if you want to, I'm sure you could draw parallels with, like, say, people's reactions to, um, you know, like, like migrants, say, like, like this, you know, Syrian migrants crossing the, the Mediterranean and things, like, placing themselves and... Or people wanting abortions. In enormous danger even. in a way that we couldn't, 
you know, like we couldn't contemplate, but you're like, geez, what would I do if I was in that situation where mm. I'm living in this, you know, war torn country that I can't feel safe in and my only other option is potential safety but it's going to involve incredible danger so I, I think there's something in that scene and again what I do like about it is that it doesn't get resolved either way you know you just have Kara mm. Cheery and Pessimal kind of putting their views out there while I've, I'm happy it doesn't get resolved I, I would agree with you I think we could get a little more of it like a little mm. more of this idea of because goblins are depicted as so different culturally than not only humans, but it seems most of the other disc species, like dwarves and trolls, that the act of integrating them into society isn't simply going to be a matter of stopping the kind of like the bastards, like rust and and so on, you know, exploiting them for for uh, labor, but also going to be like a, a you know a process of cultural negotiation that's going to be a bit trickier. While I do really like the scene with Tears of the Mushroom at at the end and, and how it intercuts with the scene of Vimes kind of rounding up the conspirators and, and basically making that speech to the town about how this stuff isn't going to happen anymore, about how it's wrong. I, I really love just how it shows how Vimes and Sybil work as a team about how mm, yeah. how how, how uh, accomplishing something like this is a multi-pronged process that takes more than just catching the bad guys or takes more than just kind of joining all our hands together and promising to be nice people you know it's it's kind of it's it's a bit about i would agree that i feel sort of naive that it's just like this one event is and, and it's kind of a consequence of like if you do this in any book and you want to particularly a kind of genre book like pratchett writes and i you know i love him as a writer and i think he's, he's a lot more complex than a lot of people give him credit for but ultimately he is going to present situations in which things are largely resolved at the end of it like that's sort of the the bargain he has with the reader at the start you know what i mean it, it would be i'm sure it would be an off-putting experience for a lot of people if you get to the end of this and there's this sense that this issue hasn't moved on at all like you know vimes is a bit more you know like respects goblins now but he he can't convince anyone else or something so i do think it, it, like it's it's sort of a consequence of the type of book it is that you have to present this what in reality would be this huge gradual cultural shift as a mm. single moment that can be kind of you know depicted and written about in an engaging way i think it's written about brilliantly like i love that scene within the in the, the um the Ankh-Morpork times where like yeah your yeah, man's kind of looking good. at the, the review and and again the, the idea of like that i suppose that there's a little less naivety there because the, the fella the sub-editor is it, who's looking at the review it's not like he's reading the review and it's like my god i wish i had been there goblins yeah. are wonderful now like he's just gonna ask, oh, look at these fancy terms but then william the word who has been there runs up and is like don't change your word of it just print it mm. um and going back to the idea of uh homogenization uh, homogenization and assimilation versus like cultural distinction i i think there's something deftly done in that like tears of the mushroom is presenting a form of music that the humans, well, largely humans, I suppose, trolls and, and, and the rest of them, can recognize and appreciate, and she's doing it in a setting that's very much of their society, like the Ankh-Morpork Opera House. But it's also, we're kind of given to believe by the music she plays, is something wholly different than, like, a goblin variation on this human uh, instrument. So I like that, that it isn't just that she's, like, you know, doing whatever the Discworld equivalent of, like, you know Beethoven sixties and saying, "Oh, yeah, look, yeah. they can do the thing we done really well, yeah, so yeah. we like them now." She's coming up with a kind of hybrid form, and that this mm. is winning people over. But I mean, I would agree with you that it's just 
kind of unfortunately and inevitably naive to make it seem like it's going to be this one moment that's going to win every hour. As well done as it is where you, you kind of see Sybil has made a situation where all the most powerful people are going to be there and it's going to affect them and then they're going to make decisions and that's going to triple trickle down. And in fairness, we do get it complicated with that bit with Veterinary at the end where he says, look, we can't really arrest or that I do like. the people who've done this because it mm. wasn't the law at the time. But look, this it mightn't seem like it now, but this is a victory. You know, things are changing. So, yeah, it's it sort of has its ups and downs as to how naive or contrived versus how complex and enriching the the uh, finishes yeah like um there's bits that in that, that like in that ending that i really like actually the way things work out with both um colin and nobby were bits that i really really liked because like colin at this point is someone who i feel like this is something that's been alluded to like in a very subtle or like downplayed sort of way but colin is kind of he's he's kind of a marginally racist sort of way like your uncle Mm. on Christmas dinner kind of would be you know making little comments that are a little bit not PC but you're kind of like all right we'll let it slide even though we're not a fan like that kind of way he's like the kind of person who and and I think I I can't remember where but I I think I read this of like an account of of Nazi Germany uh, prior to the the war and the Holocaust kicking off but how even at like the height of Nazism it's like oh every German you talk to knows at least one good Jew who they'll tell you isn't like the others you know like Mm, whatever like you know um, like my neighbour Mr. Cohen no he's great he's not like those other Jews you know he's uh, like he's a sound lad uh, like like and it's like oh do you know any other Jews oh no no but they're all they're all bastards they're you know kind of like trying to take over the world the only one you know is this fella who you get on with you know like Colin I feel is like that like if you're yeah. like to him what do you think about those uh, Omnians Fred and he's like oh religious fanatics oh what about you know um, Washpot he's like oh no he's great he's great you know yeah like, yeah, yeah actually do, that, do you that, know that, any other ones. Oh no no, but they're all like like washpot's different, but the rest of them, you know, it's like isn't, what do you think of goblins? Uh, like a, you know, isn't that like it? Doesn't he have a conversation exactly like that in Jingo? I'm pretty sure he does. Like yeah yeah, Nobby yeah. has it with him where he's you know he's saying like he's trying to kind of parse like oh the Clatchians are wrong, their skin's darker now. He's like oh what about the Omnians? Like oh no no they're different. Yeah so, yeah, yeah I, I feel like he's he, he's so you know he, he's like that in a way like I kind of like that as a characterization for him <laughs> that's a very attractive characterization but in the sense of like you know often when you see particularly racial prejudice addressed this idea of getting to know one other person from that like other uh, ethnic group and realizing that they're you know you get on with them is presented as the solution that will then cure you or cure whatever character of prejudice you know mm. like i never knew any latino people before and now my <laughs> new partner on the force like hernandez he's great i i respect all latinos now i've gone back on my you know my, my racism before that it's like in actuality you'd probably have a colon like situation where it'd be like Ah, Hernandez is all right, but the rest of those guys, where they're so lazy and, you know, so so I kind of mm. like that. And that it's this uneasy toleration toleration on behalf of the rest of the watch where they're like, ah, like you know, 90% of the time Fred is sound. He's like helpful. He like, he'd never say anything to anyone's face, but he has these attitudes that like annoy the feck out of me, you know, and cheery kind of. In a sort of restrained way, it's like he says to him, you know, and he's complaining about Goblin says, look, you know, look, I, I really shut up, just shut like the hell really up. Yeah, like, shut the fuck up. Yeah, yeah. I do, I do like that. Like, I, I think it's, 
it's a good like it's almost like the opposite like whereas the problem with Vimes is that he's like this super soldier who can do no wrong like it's nice to have like someone else who's in the watch who is problematic like it's nice that they're not everybody in it isn't just like a super saint like Vimes or like Carrot or whoever like you have Colon who's like genuinely problematic Vimes says like oh yeah Colon is like low-key kind of like anti non-human like so it's it's refreshing to have that in there it's I think it's good that, like, the way it's resolved, it isn't resolved in such a way that I think Colon immediately changes his mind about everyone. He's like, suddenly, oh, well, I think all goblins are great now. They're fantastic. But rather that, like, he realizes that he's made mistakes and he might still have those prejudices, like, deep down. But, like, he has to acknowledge that, like, hey, goblins saved my life. Like, you know, I need to be, I need to kind of wise up a little bit, but it's going to take time. And I like that that's conveyed nicely enough in the writing that you, you definitely, it comes across that it's not an immediate clean solution. And also in a very comedic sort of way, like I, this almost wouldn't have worked. Like I, I, it's a very razor thin line, but I like the idea that there's a suggested romance going on between Nobby and a goblin that like the fact that like, I'm glad that they don't say, Oh yeah, they're going out now. Cause it's like, no, but the fact that like, Oh, it could happen. I'm just like, that just about works for me. It's, it's like, it's, it's ridiculous. But it's like a nice kind of like a marriages of culture, ma- marriage of cultures that like I feel like sort of works in very broad strokes as well, like in, in my personal opinion. But um, all these issues that we have, like I feel like this central message, heavy handed though it is, like it is, I do like I do like the way that it isn't like a clean resolution. The main issue that I have is just the actual the way the whole the events of the novel progress. It's just, yeah, the main issue that I have with it is just that it's not that engaging. And, like, at the time I was thinking, oh, this is, like, you know, Poirot or whatever. But, like, it is a problem when you're used to, like, the really, like, high, high, well, I wouldn't say high octane, but, like, really engaging, like, uh, thrilling plots of, like, previous Watch books that have this incredible mystery. Like, I found myself thinking of, like, Feet of Clay, like, the whole mystery of, like, how are people poisoning the patrician? Mm-hmm. And it's so engaging. You're like, oh, my God, this is amazing. Um, I, you know, I know I've just used the word amazing, like, four times in a row now. I'm going to stop saying it. <laughs> but, like, in contrast, yeah. Yeah, I, I think you're you're doing my man Poirot dirty by making the comparison with the, the lack of attention. I, I just, like, like, it's the style that, that I'm talking always, about. Yeah, but, but I think it is indicative because I said it, it is the tone and setting he's going for here. And, and that he largely captures, I think. And But I think the problem is that you don't get the same structure. So, say, like, mm. in a Poirot, the climactic moment is you know where he usually whatever he has them all in the drawing room is the classic scene it isn't always that but like he then explains how he solved the the mystery you know whatever mm. sometimes you have to the murderer try and make a run for it or make a last attempt to do something and and this is kind of structured as if in a way where that happened with about 80 pages to go and then yeah. the murderer like Poirot's like here's exactly what happened then he outlines you know like all the things you want to know in a mystery novel like that like here's this, here's why this person was acting suspicious, but it wasn't them. It was actually him. That person runs out the door and there's 80 pages to go. And like, you know, the, the, the only kind of plot tension driving the remaining 80 pages is the police Poirot to help the police track this fella that they now know for sure is the murderer down. And you don't doubt for a second, they're going to do it. What you're mainly here for was to find out who done it. How did they do it? Why did they do it? That's been solved. It's just the actual catching of them now. And that's what we get here because like the scene where Vimes on the wonderful Fanny frees the goblins, you know, beats your man Stratford. You have to, what is he said is a very kind of a, 
for all those like little bits I feel undercut the tension a bit. It is a very evocative and well done drama scene. And then after that, we got a bit of, like that's a hundred pages left after that, mm. and everything afterwards just becomes this parade of self congratulation for Vimes. Like it's <laughs> it's really and he's a character I love, but I found it unbearable. Like right from the bit where he goes. It kind of begins on the the wonderful Fanny when he goes back to make sure your man doesn't get you know doesn't cut off the barge holding the goblins and mm. this fellow what is he like two gallon something so he's you know he's as wide as a yeah like, that, that annoyed me as well actually like, Vimes knocks him out with a single punch and then he arrives <laughs> in Querm and you're all just like this lad's the best police officer there ever was and uh, what well, it's Sergeant Haddock is there because he's kind of on on like placement in, oh, in God, the aquarium, yeah. and he's just telling Bob's, "Oh, they all love you. It's great." Yeah. And then he gets on a boat and like they're they're going after the remaining goblins. That's where where you find it, where they find the remaining goblins. They find Jefferson and Feeney makes some comment to him about like the boat as we we found it earlier is powered by oxen. And he goes like, "I think what you've got in you could power this boat even without oxen, yeah. uh, oxen like, like that. Like that's how strong your sense of justice is." And then they get on the the Robert E. Biscuit, and I realised that part of this is to kind of set you at ease at the reader and kind of make you feel like, you know, it, it's all over, it's all plain sailing here to make the Stratford sneaking up in a bit, like all all the more, um, you. Know, but I I don't think it's entirely successful in that. So instead, we just get the scenes of like everyone on the boat loves him. They make a drink in his honor. Like he's the fucking he's you know hot shit. <laughs> <laughs> but like, like another reason that isn't successful is because it's very reminiscent of the ending of Nightwatch. Because when he gets back like into his own time, it's like everything's grand and down to earth again. But we also learn that Carcer is still alive and mm. that like he's going after his son as well. And that moment is so much more tense. Because there's real stakes there. But like in this one, like we 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 know like from the very beginning, like this is all gonna get resolved, no problems whatsoever. So we're just like you know, we're just treading water at this point until we get to like the conclusion. So it's Yeah. I I, I think too, like with Carcer, the whole like he set up uh, where him and Vimes in the past, like they're the only ones who know one another and know who they really are. You know, mm. the whole like Vimes at points worries whether he's going to try to Carcer's going to try and kill his younger self and upset the time to you know the the time continuum. So when we get back to the present and Carcer's going for his house, it's sort of it's like the ultimate final realization of the threat he has posed throughout the book of like mm. Vimes always under threat in this kind of like dystopian like Morpork, but Carcer's the main threat because he really knows him and mm. you know knows what makes him tick and like this is his last snatch at that where Stratford doesn't know Vimes. Vimes doesn't really know him. We we kind of you know he only pops up at the end of the book really anyway. He's yeah. like a cut price pound shop carcer that Vimes deals with easily enough. So his his attempt at going for his family feels less like a natural progression of like this is exactly what this cutthroat bastard would do, and this is just what Vimes feared yeah. to being like yeah just just a way to extend the novel really, mm. and also the fact that like when Carcer goes for Vimes' family, like it's this desperate race across town where he hops like in the nip on the broomstick with Riccoli and it's like you've got to get me back home you've got to get me back home like whereas here he's completely prepared for it like he it is quite a clever bit where he swapped the rooms around but you know once he catches him it's like oh this lad never really posed any threat to him did he yeah Another major issue like with Stratford as a character is that he's not really the main antagonist either in that like you know the whole way through this we know the key people responsible are 
it's fairly certain, very much, very much a certain that it's like Lord Russ Jr. But there's also this general vibe of like the magistrates in general, the magistrates council are at fault. So the fact that they're kind of a faceless glob of people really hurts the novel too. Because like, even though Vimes is this like invincible force, but he's just kind of fighting, you know, a battle of ideals more than anything else. Like, because, um, you, you know, like uh, not having that, like, you know, personified foe well they tried to give him this personified foe in like uh, Stratford but it just doesn't work it's completely ineffectual because of all the reasons we just said but um, one thing that that does although it's kind of uh, ineffective in terms of like how the pace of the book works it raises like so an interesting idea some interesting ideas in the way that the divide between like the poor and the rich and also, like, how the rich will go to extraordinary lengths to kind of put themselves above the law. Like, this is something that I I found myself thinking of. Uh, and I'm sorry to anyone listening that I keep bringing it back to, like, Irish case studies, but we're Irish. So I found myself thinking of, like, you know, the scandal with uh, Catholic priests in Ireland. How, like, you know, they went to, ex- like, even, like, the Vatican got involved, went to extraordinary lengths to kind of cover up. Sorry, for those who don't know that there was some uh, charges of like child abuse with, you know, older Irish Catholic priests and like younger children. And yeah, the Vatican got involved, covered the entire thing. Well, covered it up as effectively as they possibly could. And, you know, there's this idea that like people can be above the law. And in in Ireland like that, it's it's interesting that rather as the aristocracy, it's like, uh, you know, the clergy, who at that point, to be fair, were like basically the kings of Ireland back in those days. This is another thing that's kind of, it's kind of touched upon and it's not as like, whereas like the previous thing we were talking about, the idea of uh, goblins eating their young and like how this is something that's touched upon, but not really given enough focus. I feel like this is something that's always in the background and it's a bit more effective because like it's not, like it's it's always kind of there. So it's something that like we're kind of always thinking about a little bit, but it I think it's it's a bit detrimental to the novel as a whole because it really hurts the pacing. Like it's very clear that the main antagonist here is basically the scheming aristocracy who like tr- is trying to be above the law in general as opposed to like a single figure. So um yeah, I think I think that hurts the novel in general, but it's an interesting concept. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I agree with you, like, the ultimate fate of Gravid Rust is not unlike a, a priest who would just be moved to another parish to avoid scandal, and that, like, he's just going to cool his heels in uh, 4X, isn't he? I know, admittedly, it's somewhat worse than, like, Vetinari says about how he'll be disinherited and so on, but, like, and he's not going to face any legal justice or prison sentence for it, and that fits with a lot of the crime or the crimes of the teams and ideas that come up across the book. With this idea of small crimes hiding or leading to bigger crimes, mm. you know, and that like smuggling seems like this small time thing. People like Flutter are obviously very small time operators, but behind them are these powerful people making an enormous amount of money on some really terrible deeds. Mm. So the idea about them ultimately not being punished for it, and Vimes kind of alluding throughout, like he, he I think he, he says both to Flutter and to the captain of that ship that they find Jetro on, about, like, how he sort of gets them to, you know, uh, give evidence by saying, like, I don't like this world where, you know, the people who make these, give the orders, get away with it, and the people who follow the orders are the only ones punished. Mm. You know, uh, it's not neglecting that, like, the people who follow the orders are complicit as well, you know, if they're they're doing um, evil deeds. 
So there is something interesting in like that that's what he's chasing after, and that ultimately isn't what he gets to his satisfaction because we like as veterinary tells him that they won't be able to uh, prosecute um, Gravid Rust. I do think it's interesting that there, there's a scene that kind of weirdly goes against that where he's talking to, you know, like the colonel who is a it was like the husband of one of the magistrates. Yeah. And is aware of like, we get a kind of nice scene from his point of view at one of their meetings. And, and it, it, like, he's aware of what's going on, but he doesn't do anything about it. And it, it sort of struck me as, not a wrong exactly, but like a bit interesting that Vimes didn't in any way hold him accountable for like, you mm. know, okay, well you weren't a part of this, but you sure as hell weren't trying to stop it, you know? And and when he comes to Vimes and I know it's a scene in isolation is quite kind of touching where he's sort of like, like, well, like what's going to happen to my wife? You know, she's not that mm. bad really. I promise. I know it doesn't seem that way, but we do have a love for one another. And, and, and Vimes kind of assures him like, look, she, probably won't get you know an enormous sentence like she's not going to be locked away forever or anything like that but it's sort of at odds with Bimes's seeding rage that Gravid just has or Gravid just Gravid Rust has avoided justice when he's talking with veterinary that he is assuring the, the the colonel that like oh don't worry your wife won't get that bad a sentence you know you think from from what he said earlier he wants to see her be you know, prosecuted to the, the fullest extent of the law. It's an odd little inconsistency there, inconsistency there. And I do think that that idea in general about the big crimes, you know, behind the little crimes is an interesting one. And it's totally, thematically consistent with that, to have villains that are largely off page. And instead we have their henchmen, the Stratfords and the Flutters and so on as our actual like foe that has to be bested but it does kind of rob the book of a certain amount of tension because you don't really have any figure that you can sort of that can kind of anchor all these ideas that are being fought against in the book in the way that like someone like Reacher Guilt can kind of anchor the like cutthroat capitalism you know, of mm. going postal or someone like kind of Carcer can represent the vicious opportunism, uh, like like that is rife in the Ankh-Morpork of the past and Nightwatcher, so on. You don't, we don't really have anyone that um, embodies it. I mean, I suppose Stratford sort of does because there's a sense of like he's this kind of vicious psychopath that is kind of allowed to flourish because vicious psychopathy is an employable and valuable skill by rich people trying to circumvent the law. But uh, he's not really painted vividly enough for for me for, to like yeah. anchor it's also, that in any interesting way. It's also interesting in that like he's he's this weird kind of like oh he's like a, a shadow figure like uh like the shadow archetype of um like the main villains in that like you know because he's kind of placing Flutter in the position that he himself is in with the magistrates in that like because initially uh, Vimes catches Flutter before he catches catches him and he's going to like let him take the rap he's like oh yeah he's just the, the kind of henchman that I had like helping me out he wasn't like the main brains of the outfit but because he himself also isn't the main brains of the outfit it makes it it's 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 all very confusing in the way like the message that's coming across even though like we get what what's being said here but it's it's a little bit all over the place like you know i wonder if this is like uh some kind of response that terry pratchett might have been trying to do in uh because like so this is something that we talked about in like plenty of other books before that an issue that we he often has is with his villains and how he portrays them and like maybe he's making a conscious effort to kind of stray away from that in that the main villain isn't 
the main antagonist in the book. It's like someone who, as you said, is like off page like so often. But um, I don't think it's successful, basically. Yeah, yeah. We said often like the villains have kind of two threats that they're like a material threat of just, you know, killing the hero or whatever and a conceptual threat that they represent these ideas that are being critiqued in the book and it's here it's like he has material threat in Stratford and mm. a conceptual threat the, the ideological threat is something that like is isn't represented in a single figure on page it's obviously yeah. something that, as we said is talked about a lot and and maybe it's an attempt to like you know do that you get your action climax with Stratford but you don't oversimplify this complex issue and you know if so like I, I can kind of I can see that line of thinking and like and and how it could seem attractive, but yeah, it just there, there's something. It just does lend to lend to this general air of of lack of tension about the book when you kind of don't have a yeah like a vivid villain to anchor these concepts in. Mm. Speaking of the like on the on the lack of tension, and particularly we were saying with, with Vimes being this kind of superhero celebrated figure, what did you think of him having the summoning dark in his head? Um. I, like, I mean, I feel like it was a very useful crutch for Terry Pratchett when he was writing this book. Like, it definitely, any time, like, uh, like, I felt like the bit um, where he goes into the cellar in uh, Flutter's cellar and the crime kind of reveals itself to him because of the uh, summoning dark was very convenient. Like, I, I, I kind of felt like, like, it makes sense, obviously, like, like narratively because like we know what the summoning dark is from uh a thud and like it's cons it seems consistent with its abilities but like i don't know it seems a little over convenient like for pretty much everything in this book uh in my opinion um and i and like the thing is i at some points i feel like he justifies it in a night like a nice little way like uh the fact that vimes is able to see in the dark and he can steer the um the uh wonderful fanny down old treachery like that's something i don't think was strictly necessary so i think it was something that like the fact that it takes place at nighttime might have been something that was included to kind of justify the inclusion of the summoning dark because it comes up a couple of times like i feel like the main reason this came up at all was to give Vimes an easy way to figure out what happened on the hill. I don't know. It's It didn't... Once you asked me how I felt about it, it's only really started to bother me now. <laughs> but, um, yeah, it's... Like, it's... It, it, it feels like it's just there for the sake of convenience, and I, I kind of wish it wasn't. It doesn't bother me too much, but it does bother me, basically. How, how about yeah. you, like... I will say it was a little less prominent than I remembered it being. Like, like mm. in my head, it was this kind of superhero power that Vimes was using throughout the whole book, and, and it's not exactly the case reading it. Although, as a consequence of that, because he doesn't use it as much, it is sort of a bit roughly done. In the, I think we're almost 100 pages into the book before it's really referenced or discussed. So, obviously, the seed for it was very much planted in, in Todd, but it feels a bit more abrupt when we've kind of gone through the start of this book without without it coming up i mean i do think like i think it detracts a lot from vimes as a character and i think your your use of the word crutch there is is probably a good description of, of its effect plot wise and I, I i think like you yeah you can take it out and some of the bits of the plot become more difficult but i don't think they become insoluble you know like there's not yeah 
Yeah, and, and most so like I have it have it noted down here. So, so like plot wise, we use the I have we lose Vimes being able to score. Plot wise, we lose Vimes being able to scare that turkey fella by knowing what happened on that night because I couldn't remember Flutter's name when I was making that note. But I feel like we see Vimes here and elsewhere kind of use a sort of combination of savviness and intimidation to get you know prisoners to talk without having to resort to outright torture or anything like that. And it probably would have been more interesting just to see him do that to Flutter than, yeah. the, you know, than the scene where he can simply uh, learn what's happened through the summoning there. We lose his ability to steer at the end, which I suppose the thing there is it's what means that he has to be the one to steer the boat. I don't, like, I suppose the, it, it, the scene loses a bit of action if, if he's just guarding the fella um, at the tiller rather than steering it himself but I don't think hugely so you know I, I like, think like, that could very easily have been like a case of like oh my god there's no like the person who was steering it gets knocked unconscious for some reason he's like okay well there's no one else I have to do it and actually would have made for a more interesting bit of writing if well, he well, hadn't he, well, had he has that ability the thing, he has the thing where your man knows the river so like like mm. he has to he's there he can see what's coming but your man can like tell him what direction to go in because he knows the river which which I like because it's sort of again it's it it is one of the rare elements in this book where he is so superpowered, where where you see his limits like he doesn't know anything about boating or the river and this fellow has mm. to talk him through that. So, but I don't know like if he was to say like he comes up he knocks out the fella who's got the tillerman at at, at a arrow point and then he's standing guard over him like you know marveling and being terrified by this fella's ability to try and navigate on this like dark stormy night while also trying to look out for threats elsewhere it's still quite a compelling scene i think the Mm. one other thing plot wise is when him and feeny are in the goblin's cave he can obviously see what's happening and he can understand the goblins as a consequence of the summoning dark maybe that makes the book a bit shorter and neater because you don't have any you don't have to have any scenes of it being you know, him working through an interpreter or him, like, learning Goblin. I think it's probably more interesting if he's a bit more unsettled in the Goblin Cave. If, like Feeney, he can hardly see. Maybe there's a bit of a, and this is a, admittedly a technique Pratchett himself has slagged off in earlier books of, like, luminous fungi on the walls that make, you know, <laughs> uh, the hero able to see in the Star Cave when, when otherwise yeah. he wouldn't be. Maybe there's a bit of that, but overall, if you have him there, you can't see a thing. There's maybe one goblin down there that speaks English, you know, or whatever they call it, more porky, and, and he's, Vimes has to talk through him, and his mind is racing, and he, I don't know, I think that's probably more compelling than if he's more at ease, because he can see what's going on, and he can understand them, even mm. if it helps him, admittedly that helps him relate to the goblins a bit more, but, I, like, I don't think he'd be wholly incapable of doing that if he, if he had to work through an interpreter. Team-wise and character-wise, it kind of undercuts the notion of Vimes as like an ordinary copper made good because he mm. now has literal superpowers. And I think too, like this notion of the beast, like this inner darkness that's there in Vimes that he has to restrain. For one, we're a broken record saying this, but it was dealt with much better in Nightwatch, where there was no kind of supernatural element to it. It was just sort of literalized metaphors of this struggle that's gone on in his head. I do think there is an interesting element to that here where he sees the fella that has Mrs. Silito that we, we later find out is Stratford. He does know at the time. He sees him having her, you know, under threat. 
and he kind of acknowledges that if Feeney wasn't there and if she wasn't there, he'd kill your man. And mm. the only thing that holds him back the whole time is the presence, literal or metaphorical, of someone else watching. In the, in the same way that in that scene at the end of Nightwatch when he's about to kill Carcer and he thinks of young Sam and it's kind of about a combination of his younger self and his you know soon-to-be-born son watching him and what would he think. And I think that's kind of an interesting admission from him that like this is how he restrains himself that he can't really depend on himself to restrain himself. Mm. He has to kind of, I suppose, place his his conscience, his heart in other people, which which I think is an interesting kind of vulnerability in that he he has that lack of faith in his own restraint. But having said all that, this notion of like the inner darkness, obviously Vimes is depicted as quite a misanthropic character, you know, who doesn't have a lot of patience for people or faith in humanity but like he's never his misanthropy misanthropy misanthropism whatever tropic nature isn't something that's like <laughs> yeah, yeah better uh isn't something that like yes it's a characterization of him but it's not like like a you know he's not like the most miserable man in the world you know what i mean like we can kind of draw a line from Vimes, the misanthrope, who's seen seen a lot of shit in his time on the force, you know, with, like, really horrible stuff, has lost a lot of faith in, in humanity or in whatever sentient species in, in, in general, with any police officer, with any anyone working on the front line of things, like, in a hectic job, whether they're, like, you know, people working in hospitals, whether they're, like, say, like, social workers, people working in, in war-torn areas that might get their fate in people worn down by consistently confronting horror, right? Mm-hmm. So, Vimes, yeah, while he seems like the most misanthropic guy on the Ankh-Morpork force, that quality is something that feels kind of relatable and, and human. We can kind of, we, we see it through Vimes and we think, God, yeah, if you were in that line of work, or certainly any listeners who work in that those kind of jobs are thinking... I know what know how he feels here. Like when you just feel like, you know, you've seen so much that you have this anger and rage against against them, um, you know, injustice against people in general. So it goes from feeling less like something that's relatable like that, and to more that like he has this supernatural, you know, like burning hatred inside him that he has to restrain that nobody else knows that nobody can relate to. Like, oh yeah, sure, carrot and detritus and Angua, they might have seen some bad stuff, but they don't have like an actual literal demon spirit in their head yeah. urging them to do bad stuff, you know, and suddenly it feels it makes him feel apart from the other characters in a way that's less interesting and it makes him feel apart from I don't know, any kind of sense of reality that makes him sort of less interesting. Yeah, I, I was more or less going to reiterate what you uh, just said. I think that um, I wonder if when he was writing Vimes in this book that he found himself leaning towards like something like that, say, uh, maybe he was writing something like Vimes started thinking about like his inner animal or something. And then he just thought to himself, oh, wait, remember that thing that like possessed him, the other one? Maybe I can just use that as like the beast that's inside him. Mm-hmm. Like, um, yeah. And like you said that when when it's like, kind of characterized as a separate entity it takes a lot of what made vines really interesting before much less interesting and um because like because because we have this image of vines as this kind of like super cop who can handle anyone and anything but like up until like a thud everything before that like the biggest 
issue that Vimes ever had was the fact that like he has to constantly be looking over his own shoulder to kind of prevent himself from going over the edge and becoming a killer but now that all those urges like his id per se has been personified as a separate entity and I think there's like some kind of subliminal messaging going on in this book where because it's a separate entity we know he can take care of it because he can always take care of like you know any 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 obstacles that come his way he'll either compromise or like just handle things but that's always been a constant battle when it comes to he himself but now that's been taken away and that's why i think thank god you said all that now because now i realize why i had an issue with this (laughs) but um yeah yeah no absolutely like i now i can quite clearly and confidently say i didn't like it <laughs> i'm glad of that i'm glad yeah. the, the sower and a speaker for discontent this is this is um, why we yeah, have I think these it's things like, like you know when like uh, obviously another uh quality of his is that he's an alcoholic and you know when you have those bits where uh you know, you've frozen up but i'm gonna i'm gonna Sorry. keep talking because i'm recording and i presume you can hear me you look very happy in your frozen state <laughs> oh you still look happy good Uh, like another quality of his is that he's an alcoholic and you know early on you have I think Colin speculates that he's naturally canored which is this disc world state that's like the opposite of drunk where you're stripped of all your illusions and become much more stark and bleak and miserable and it's as if that uh, as a Colin's kind of theory of him being naturally canored was confirmed by a wizard or something and he was given this supernatural or really unusual medical reason for his particular struggles with alcoholism Uh, like almost like saying he isn't just your common or garden alcoholic he is this struggle that none of you can possibly know you know it's like that like his struggle against against the beast to restrain himself and to hold in check that misanthropism and that that uh, rage that he understandably accrues in the line of work he is becomes less something that we can relate to and more something that like no it's supernatural he's the angriest most miserable guy ever who has a mightiest battle within himself or restraint that nobody else could possibly understand yeah <laughs> which would seem to make him more unique but just makes him less interesting yeah yeah no 100 percent, i agree with you um i'd like to talk to you about uh there's a bit in it that's it's weird that it's kind of forgettable, but also really enjoyable. There's a bit in this, there's a couple of bits in this. All the sections where uh, Vimes is literally trying to have a holiday, like where he's just wandering around the manor and like trying to do all these little things, like those bits I found really enjoyable in this book. Not necessarily memorable, but like really, really good. Like I love the, I love the whole bit where he's walking down the hallway and he notices all the maids have to turn their back on him. And uh, the reasoning they have behind this is, like, in the past, apparently, maids were asked to do this because prior to this, guests would come to the house and when they'd see the maids, because they are, like, lesser, they feel like they wouldn't have to behave themselves as much, so they'd have a little bit of a rendezvous with the maids, like, in separate rooms. And, like, obviously they could get away with this because they were wealthy and, like, uh, the maids were not. That whole explanation is really good, but even better are, the like, the little characterizing moments that don't necessarily serve the plot. Like, um, I really enjoy almost any moments with young Sam. 
like in the playroom is really good there's a great bit of writing where um and i found this so relatable i remember thinking this is myself as a kid where uh, young sam looked like he was on the verge of tears because he was looking around and seeing there were so many toys and no matter how hard he tried he wouldn't be able to play with all of them at once <laughs> and i was like that is so good and yeah. like you can tell he really on un- terry pratchett really understood children very well in that moment <laughs> and also actually just the whole idea of uh, Mrs. Beadle, like uh, the poo lady and how he really li- like how as a kid, he really likes poo. And I'm like, that that is perfect. That is young boys to a T. Like, that's exactly the kind of thing like kids are just into. Like. Oh, there's not as scatological as a six year old boy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're all those moments just are lovely, um, well characterized and, and a nice way of distinguishing this book from what's come before it you know obviously like like young sam was only born at the end of night watching toad he's he's an infant so in in these like father and son bits it's something we we haven't really got from from other from other watch novels and that's uh yeah it's it's nice it's it's refreshing Mm. and there's also um like all these are really nice and in a weird sort of way i almost wish there was a separate book just showing Mr. Vimes' holiday, like, you know, like, where nothing really happens, like, I'm I'm not sure how well that would work, but, like, it is really enjoyable, and if it was a separate book, I think it would all culminate in that uh, dinner they have with all the young ladies who are looking to get married, and uh, it all kind of uh, builds towards uh, Vines eventually losing his shit, uh, so to speak, and telling them, why don't you out, go out and get jobs and like so and so and so on. And uh, one of them, he tell she, she's aspiring to be like a novelist. And he tells the rest, like he says, you should absolutely go for that. And the other girls who want to get married say, like, you're smart girls. Clearly, you could get jobs like in Ankh Pork as like nurses or something like that. And like, it's a little small victory. Like, yeah, it's 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 an interesting little bit there. It's like I wouldn't say it's like, oh, my God, it's incredible. But neither is it bad. It's just like a nice, very typical moment, typical moment of like Vimes's character portrayed very well in this book about the countryside. <laughs> yeah, I think it's interesting, too, the way it's written, where as he's going back, he's thinking Sybil's going to be really annoyed at him. But then it's kind of implied that her and the mother of the girls like kind of arranged mm. for this because they knew Vimes would just speak his mind and that this would kind of shake them out of this I suppose like a tunnel vision view of life they have where marriage is the only thing they have to look forward to the only bit that didn't ring true to me there is that he's so gobsmacked by like their outlook in life and I'm thinking well he's you know he's moved in circles with an ability in Ankh-Morpork Park enough yeah. that like like surely this this sort of view isn't them um, like a wholly rural thing like like you know I'm sure there's like whatever Lord Russ or Lord Salachi's daughters or nieces in Ankh-Morpork Park are, you know, presumably, well, maybe not because there's so much more industry in Ankh-Morpork, Park, but we're never really shown that that wouldn't be the case. But, but yeah, it's another nice little scene there. I mean, I do think overall, for all the kind of harrowing depiction of, of the stuff the goblins go through and some of the, the complexities of the themes with yeah, cultural homogenization and integration, there is a sense of this being a kind of run-of-the-mill adventure. It's sort of like, you know, at the start of the second Avengers film, when mm. like it kind of begins in Medea Res, and they're just like fighting off some baddies and quipping to one another, and then they kind of solve that problem, and then like the actual events of the film start. There's kind of this sense of this, like like a sense of this is the kind of adventure Vimes has between the big adventures of the book. Yeah, 100%. like you know these more kind of that don't 
try or push him as hard but you know just what he's doing and i, I definitely feel like it probably would have made for a better novella you know like uh, which I'm, I'm not sure how many like novellas pratchett really wrote it to see in little fishes lonker witches one that was in the the legends collection is the uh, surely it can't be maybe it's the only one he's done so i don't know that he was in the habit of doing them or that the idea would have even occurred to him but if you just have this being i don't know feeling maybe less stretched if it's just this like 150 page you know thing that's in i don't know in a mm. collection or something like that yeah yeah i think you're right um yeah it's an odd one in that like because like so many of pratchett's books like sometimes you'd lament like it being shorter because there's so many great bits in it but like it's just it's only when it comes all together and like when you know there's been better examples of like his novels coming together and you see how this like pales in comparison. It's only then when you kind of feel to your, think to yourself, yeah, this might have been more suited to like a novella kind of situation. I'm just going to nitpick at like one or two other little bits, like nitpick or like praise other like random little bits that don't serve into the central themes. One thing that I really didn't like in this, um, it annoyed me quite a lot actually. I'm not sure why it did, but um, that's why we do this so we can talk these things out. I really didn't like the fact that Cheery suddenly had a crush on Carrot in this one for like from what i could tell like no reason and with no like end goal in mind it was just kind of like there uh it didn't seem to really serve anything and i just found it irritating did you feel that at all um it didn't bother me hugely because mainly because i think the worst thing that could come of it uh, that is only occurring to me now that you said it is that is to do that classic like girl on girl all women really hate one another thing with cheery and angua where you have some friction there because cheery is jealous that angua is carrot's girlfriend and because it didn't go in that direction it, it didn't really bother me like carrot is set up as such a paragon of virtue who's you know strapping and gorgeous and you know perfect and, and all that like i kind of there's almost no character that i wouldn't i wouldn't buy fancying him in some way you know Mm, I think I think it's just the fact that it was never really referenced before kind of annoyed me and I could see that what I suspect they were trying to do was kind of like uh, suggest the idea of like you know interspecies kind of romance which yeah perhaps because because then we we when we have that scene later with Nobby and the goblin Sybil mentions about a troll and a dwarf who live together so maybe it was trying to plant that seed a bit early of like mm. this is the natural next step of you know of all the kind of integration that's going on obviously with Carrot it's somewhat complicated because he's culturally dwarvish even if he's biologically human mm. um, so so she'd be more inclined to see him as like a dwarf than Vimes or Colin and see or that's the thing like I like I like that in concept it's the fact that that came about so suddenly that I feel like this is something that should have been kind of like subtly hinted at in previous books. Now, obviously, I know you can't like like this. This kind of feels like uh, oh, what's the word? It's it's retro something. You know the retconning? word retconning. Like retcon- yeah, it felt a little little retconning, like a little bit because it seemed like a little strange that after all this time, it's only now this is coming out when it's like convenient to the plot. Yeah, although you know, in, in the workplace, when you're seeing someone every day, you do develop some like you know feelings or crushes for people that aren't kind of you know at first sight as it were. You know, it's only after interacting with them, and they might be serious things that you know you're really agonizing about and uh, wishing you could be with that person, or they might just be you know whatever a slight kind of frisson you feel you feel around them every day like i i understand what you mean i'd say it didn't really bother me because it was only into one scene and i don't give what i just said I, I don't think it's 
it didn't strike me as unreal that you know this would have been a feeling that has only recently developed you know i, I didn't think it was necessary that it's something that it'd be something she's always felt hmm. well, that's that's fair enough uh, just i mean it's just a little something that yeah yeah me. fair um, the other thing was this is something I liked at first but it, the more I thought about it it kind of irritated me is um, young Sam in very many ways is kind of like a mini me of uh, Vimes like he's the child in the same way that like Vimes is like you know a super soldier who can do like pretty much anything uh, young Vimes is, is like an absolutely perfect child in so many ways like like obviously i know that like oh yeah he asked loads of questions and like he's really interested in poo and that's a bit weird but like the fact that you know he immediately goes over and like hugs the goblins like he asks Mm -hmm. people questions and all the adults just love him and stuff like that doesn't quite ring true to me a little bit like it's a minor thing but like not all kids are nice very few are (laughs) i think you're just confessing that you're a bad kid well i was a bad kid this is how i know how difficult it is to be like a kid who just like everybody thinks is amazing and fantastic like well look i, I was a selfish little crybaby so those in glass houses shouldn't throw stones <laughs> i i think he I, I i feel like he's just standing in for children in general in the bits with the goblins like the kind of point that's so. trying to be made is like he hasn't learned the prejudices that you know mm. other people have so look this isn't a natural thing which i get as a point it is a bit sort of it's a technique that can't help but feel like really sentimental to me that kind of wisdom out of the mouths of babes like you know thing like like when you see like stuff circulating on social media about like you know we were discussing this really serious political topic and then my child just piped up and said this simple solution yeah, you know, and yeah everyone yeah. clapped <laughs> <laughs> they sort of, yeah yeah there's sort of that, that that sense to it I will say this is like these are very small things like this is like yeah. these, these aren't things that like made me go oh my god I was so angry there's kind of little niggly points that I'm like well eh. I'm gonna get to you know, one little niggly point for me and one thing that really did bother me so you niggle away well I just gotta say one thing that I did like about young Sam is like although like I don't know I just said that like it really annoyed me how he was just like the golden child but there was a line I really liked how um where he sees tears in the mushroom and he says like wow you have such big hands I wish I had hands like that and like that's actually a really nice way because it's kind of this skewed way of like celebrating difference like for him because like wow he just like goblins have big hands like yeah that's like from uh, their point of view that's a bit weird but like for our kid you're just like wow that'd be so useful like that's cool like it's just a nice little technique there I'm trying to think was there anything oh actually there was another thing actually um, because we Mad Arthur at a few points in this he talks about how you know how he went on holiday and like he became kind of, he learned about his heritage from the Knack McFeagle and all that I found it interesting that like goblins were used as this like a uh, figurehead as like you know oh the way these creatures are treated is like terrible and all that and like the knack mcfeagal would be another interesting case study to make there because like i don't know if they have rights as well and like yeah but they don't seem to want them or like or be all that or need them really but yeah need them (laughs) the only the closest thing we can was at the end of I shall wear midnight with with Roland about to encroach on their land, and then you know the, the resolution of that. Tiffany kind of is able to convince them to sort of give them rights around that mound that that is theirs. But otherwise, we never really see them being exploited or oppressed by you know the society that they're outside of, and the same way the goblins are. I mean, you're right; it is it is striking, certainly, like what that he is there when 
uh, or talking about this this other species. Like from the moment he beats the shit out of those slavers, they're like, well, you know, it's not not really comparable in the sense of like he like he is uh, people have the, these abilities to take care of themselves that goblins don't have. I think uh, the only other thing that I really wanted to talk about, uh, and after that, I burst on away with the things that annoyed you, was um, Billy Slick's integration into Ang Morpork and the idea of like uh, city goblins and like how this can like change people completely. And I thought, I thought, I think I, I think I like that. Like I like the way the idea of like you know the difference between like in more than anything this just kind of like struck up the contrast between like uh rural and urban ideals and like how your how your values might change depending on your location and like you know who's around actually now that i think about it, i don't think i really had any major issues with that so like no no as i said like i think that's one of my favorite parts is that idea that they that issue that they explore through the goblins of like integration how billy slicks completely rejected his culture but he sees this as a not just a survival mechanism, but something that will help him get on in life in a way that other goblins don't. And it, it seems to be the case, like in that, like he's employed by Harry King and uh, like makes you know relatively good money and so on. And I think it's it's again well done in that it isn't resolved in that like Anya does kind of regard it as quite a sad thing that he's had to turn back on his culture. But there's no like you know the book doesn't end with Billy Slick sitting at his grandmother's feet listening to her tell traditional goblin tales thinking yeah, like yeah, yeah. i was wrong to ever reject my culture you know yeah. and mm. going out wearing i don't know like calling himself whatever his actual goblin name is again he's just sort of there as a window into this the many ways in which this 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 issue might manifest itself you know whether it's through the kind of oppressed goblins having to skulk in the cave for fear of being killed or, or captured and it's whether whether it's through him rejecting rejecting being a goblin in order to survive so just on the subject of goblins one small thing that bothered me because it just felt narratively messy is stinky and how he's kind of magical yeah you know, um, like when, when he has that where vimes early on talks about seeing being afraid of a picture of a goblin in a storybook when he was a child and Stinky then implies that he was the goblin and he was looking yeah. out at the book from Vimes. And then there, there's bits where he just seems to like appear where where he's needed. Like like when Vimes kind of wakes up on in Querum and Stinky's kind of leading this parade of goblins down out of the boat. And he thinks, I'll never see him again. Like, like he'll just vanish like he's a mm. spirit or something. And it's just, I, I don't know, maybe some people would argue that like he's kind of like a stereotype of the sort of like not quite a magical Negro figure because he doesn't like help Vimes or provide wisdom or guidance in the way that those characters often do, but like almost like, like, like the way say like native American characters are often characterized. I'm sure there's other groups that are known like this, but they're the ones to mind for me where, you know, they're, they're, they're not really characters. They're just kind of mystical mm. spiritual figures. I, to be honest, that occurred to me, but I really, it wasn't something that like, I, I, I don't know. It, it didn't, I didn't really feel like like he like there. I I thought, I thought like okay, yeah, there are some parallels with him and and those sort of stereotypes, but I don't think they're too egregious. If someone were to argue that they were, I'd probably struggle to argue against it. But whatever, it didn't it didn't it didn't bother me. It didn't feel like a, like a big thing for me. It was more just a narrative messiness of like mm. that you know not only and this feels somewhat contradictory because you know i've just been saying that a lot of what i liked about the book is the issues that aren't resolved and obviously what he is isn't resolved but 
the, the stuff about like goblin culture and the future for them not being resolved is interesting because it plays to the complexity of these big social issues that the book's dealing with. The idea of like whether he's some kind of weird magical ghost thing not being resolved just, mm. <laughs> just feels sort of lazy because it's like yeah yeah you know, yeah, no, I know what you then, mean. Then you, you can kind of have him do whatever is convenient to the plot, but without having to open up this whole other area of goblin mythos of like. Is he the ghost of a baby in an ungu pot? Is he some kind of <laughs> goblin god? We'd have mm. to learn about that stuff. We don't have time for that. He's just there, and no one's going to question it. And yeah, yeah uh, he's not an enormous part of the novel, and it, it, you know, uh, so it didn't bother me greatly. But it just sort of felt a bit sloppy and messy. That like, you know, it, it's highlighted but never addressed. Mm. I kind of found myself thinking, like, whenever Stinky was acting in this, like, weirdly mysterious way, it seemed like it was kind of linked to the summoning dark again. Because, like, I think there was one point in particular, I think, where um, he says, Stinky says, like, a a ream of things. And at the very end, he says something, like, a bit mysterious. And Vimes, like, thinks to himself, wait, did he say that? Or did I just hear something like that, you know? And the implication I kind of felt there was that, like... Vimes like he's hearing like most of the stuff with his ears but the summoning dark is hearing this extra stuff that Stinky isn't quite saying and it's just kind of him understanding like you know goblin culture in this like very generic mysterious way that is just kind of conveyed to us in a very easy convenient way so yeah it's the same problem that I had with the summoning dark basically that I just think that this is something that is thrown in there as a crutch like to kind of keep the story moving so yeah. Again, not like it's. It didn't bother me as much as the summoning dark stuff because it's not as intrusive. Yeah, like like you said, if someone like brought it up and said, "I have issues with this," it'd be very hard to argue against it. Yeah, yeah, but uh, not having those issues ourselves, that is a minor thing for me for my own experience of the book. Well, it's a more pressing issue. I think like the dirt worst aspect of this book, because whatever about vimes and the lack of tension. Vimes, at least as a character, has his, you know, strong points in this book and in general, and the lack of tension occasionally leads us to just interesting, relaxing bits like those sort of Vimes on holiday mm-hmm. bits you, you spoke about. I think, like, the the aspect of this book that has, like, no redeeming qualities for me whatsoever is Willikins, who I just think is, like, so bad here. Like, like he goes from... Remember way back in Jingo, there's this joke when... He, he he signs up for one of the regiments and Vimes encounters him with 73-hour Ahmed, 71-hour Ahmed, sorry, in the desert. And you find out that, like, when he's not a butler, Willikins is, still, like, in the army, he's this really hard-nosed drill sergeant character who's, like, mm. you know, screaming spit in the face of his the people under him and then turning back to Vimes and, you know, talking very deferentially and poshly. And that's just funny. It's just like a passing joke that's there for a scene or two. And, mm. and it adds a little bit of depth to Willikins that you're like, oh, like he has this very restrained posh butler veneer, but obviously he's quite a like died in the wall Ankmore for patriot beneath it. And this is this side of him that made him enlist and that is coming out here. And then later we get these notions of him being like, he grew up in the same place Bimes did. And he was just like hardened street tough. And as a character, it was never as interesting as Vimes because whereas Vimes, we see the steps that took him from like boy growing up in the shades to, you know, Duke of, of, of Ankh, right? Whereas Willikins were like, what led him to like being this mad, hard bastard in the toughest part of town to being like the butler to the richest, 
family in the the land mm. you know like what led there we don't know you know we're not going to know so the only thing that can sustain that character at that point is the comedy like it's just the, the kind of like tonal clash jokes of like oh he's really posh but like he actually carries around brass knuckles and you wouldn't want to you know you wouldn't want to run into him in a dark alley and those jokes when they're just there in the background in like something like Todd or you know whatever else they're bearable enough here he's like such a prominent part of the book so again you have a character that has like no connective tissue between these two very disparate points in his life that are kind of his only two characterizations really is like mad tough hard man and posh butler what adds them up we don't know right so all we have is the jokes and the jokes just aren't like good enough and he's just really annoying like and there's so much unmind things there of like again that like are just mine for repetitive jokes about Vimes thinking about how hard and crazy he is when it's like what does Vimes feel about this fella who if they weren't master and butler they, their relationship could be copper and criminal because like Willikins kind of jokes about how like oh his family hates cops you know when Vimes kind of temporarily enrolls him he's like oh for god's sake don't tell my family back home which again is kind of funny but it's just like it's leaned on too much and you're like like what does how does Vimes think of his trust of this fella who when he encountered him in any other walk of life he wouldn't trust him at all you know mm. and then what's more annoying is he's this sort of narrative shortcut for Vimes that because Vimes has to be like the good guy Willikins can just do the bad stuff so like as I said that pointless scene with Jetro where after Vimes has beat him up and Brow beat him and shouted at him we get Willikins like threatening to kill him for not respecting Vimes which just feels fucking deranged and then it's like why does he kill Stratford at the end Stratford's going to get hanged anyway Ank Morpork has capital punishment uh, yeah, it's, it's almost mm. it's, it's implied he actually frees him from the coach in order to kill him why <laughs> like you know, like, it's just completely pointless. Mm, I mean, this is something that, like, I didn't really think about too much because, like, it's just kind of happening and I don't really engage too much with Willikins as a character. You are right, he does He does uh, have much more of an influence on the plot this time around. I understand all of what you're saying and you are right, like, it is very out of character and strange. I don't know why it doesn't bother me as much, but it doesn't. Like, yeah, the whole him killing uh, the guy, I think the reasoning that I have in my head is just that he thinks nothing of it. Like, he just thinks, oh, well, he deserves to die. But that doesn't really... But he's really... going to die anyway. Yeah, I think... Yeah, I don't I, I don't know. It's, um... Like, you do get... I do get a sense that he and Vimes are very pally-pally. Like, that they are, like... Like I know, like you said, they are, they're such differing personalities. If they were, if he wasn't in uh, Vimes's employ, but I think that condition is very important and substantial in their relationship. In that, like, if it wasn't for that, then yes, they would be enemies. But because, yeah, but, but that that isn't that isn't discussed at all for anything other than kind of like you know for, for anything other than comedy for like those bits where like Willikins is embarrassed about helping the police because of what like his you know, hard men, family, and, and, you know, people who grew up with, would mm. think, which, like, I said, like, not all of those bits are unfunny, but it's just so repetitive, because, like, all we have is the humour, like, I, I mean, I get what you mean, that might be a big part of his relationship with Vimes, but we never see, we never see it dealt with in, like, any way, and I don't, when I say dealt with, I don't mean, like, it should be resolved or brought to a head or has to be a big plot line, but just, I don't know, just gone into in some kind of 
you know, some sort of depth. It's just I, like... The scene that I felt kind of um, somewhat addressed this was uh, when there's that moment where Willikin shoots like the crossbow bolts into the crowd, uh, deliberately missing. And Vimes notices that the arrow or the bolt comes from a very specific type of crossbow that was illegal, like uh, in a whole bunch of places. And it's very obvious that Vimes knows that he was the one who shot the bolt. But um, because uh, Willikins did this in order to assist Vimes, there's this kind of unspoken like arrangement that like, yes, Willikins was a criminal, but he is very much there like just to assist Vimes. So like it is unspoken because if it's addressed, then that kind of like, this is very romantic language to use, but it kind of breaks the spell. Like suddenly like they won't be able to like have this like pally relationship because like if they talk about it, they complicate it, you know? Yeah, but does that not feel like like for one like a narrative shortcut where because that that's the moment that Feeney gets like really angry because he thinks the crowd is threatening his mom then and he sort of fully throws in his lot with with Vimes having been kind of conflicted between his his orders to arrest him and um you know and and his feelings that Vimes is is doing the right thing. So it kind of functions as a narrative shortcut. It's like, oh, like this if, if this tra- crowd were to threaten Feeney or his mother now, you know, it would really push him over the edge. None of them are. So, like, Willikins is going to pretend to, you know, do it on, on, on their behalf soon. And it's essentially, like, again, as a narrative shortcut for Vimes, Vimes would never do that, or right? he could never bring himself to do that. Essentially, fake an attempt on the life of a friend's relative in order to get that friend on his side. But he allows Willikins to do it. So, it just makes it feel like Vimes isn't really as good of a person as he thinks he is. He just outsources all his, like not evil, but all his kind of, like, immorality or questionable deeds to Willikins. Like, he's not unlike how Gravid Rust has Stratford killing the goblins when he doesn't get his hands dirty. Like, I'm not suggesting what Vimes and Willikins are doing are on the scale of the horrible things Rust and Stratford do, but there's that same relationship of, like, he's the upper-class guy who, both for his own reputation and for his own sense of self, can't do this dirty work himself, so he just has his underling do it. But he he doesn't actually ask him to do it, though. He doesn't, thing. but he knows he done it, and he, he's not going to do anything about it. And the implication is that, like, you know, he never would do anything about it again. Like, like again, that at the end when Veterinary sort of pointedly, you know, is basically saying to him, "Oh, I know you had something to do with Stratford dying," and he's like, "Oh no, I didn't." And he's like, "But I'll never ask Williams about it," meaning like, I know he killed him, you know, and I'm, but I'm not going to pursue that. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I I don't know why exactly. Like, I I can't tell you exactly why it doesn't bother me. Like, yeah, that is problematic. But I mean, like, it's just, I'm... I don't know. The the overall plot, I'm just kind of thinking, like, uh, look, whatever it takes to get to the end. (laughs) You know? (laughs) Yeah. Well, to to be honest, that that more problematic aspect of, like, Vimes outsourcing his immorality abilities is literally something I've thought on as I'm speaking to you about it. Like, mainly, and and I think there is something there worth questioning, but mainly it just bothered me because I just thought it was, like, like a joke that didn't justify the attention it got in the book. Mm. Like, you know, his, his, his basically all his presence in the book can ever be is comedic because we're never going to go into any more depth on him and Vimes' relationship. We're never going to try and explain how he got from, you know, the streets to, the you know, the, his position as butler. So all he's going to be is a joke and it's not a good enough joke for the mm. p- position in the, the novel he has. It just, like, 
like the stuff he does as well. It's kind of like put me in mind of, and and you probably see this less now or older. But do you remember like well, like when you were a teenager or in your early twenties. And you'd go out with some friends and you'd be introduced to someone who's like a friend of friends. And they're like, oh, he's great. He's mad. And then like by the end of the night, you'd be like, this lad's a wanker. Like he's just, you know, like <laughs> like getting pissed, trying to start fights with people. Like, mm. you know, like making really like kind of like like harassing girls or like the barmaid or whatever. But like all his friends are just like, he's so funny, you know. Like, yeah. And it kind of feels like vimes and to kind of extent the narration is like that when us Willikins like it's presenting these things where like when he's holding the stiletto to Jethro's throat and I'm really I'm thinking what the fuck is going on like this, this fella is a lunatic he should be locked up mm. but the narration's kind of presenting it it's like he's a charming rogue he's like Lando Calrissian or something you know yeah. <laughs> when what he's actually doing is like horrendous mm. I don't know maybe it's the I think uh, what what might work in that moment but less so in the actual killing of Stratford at the end is like the idea that we know that he will never actually kill him with uh with Vimes there again this is just like trickery of the narration that like we're kind of reassured because we know like oh this is just like an empty threat in a way like you know it's never going to go any further than this yes it is absolutely off the wall insane but like because we know it's an empty threat it's just kind of like whatever maybe I Jethro is obviously a tough guy and a fella who's quite resilient, like in the way that he bounces back from his experience of captivity later. But like, you know, if someone mugged you in the street and they held a knife to your throat and you gave them your phone or your wallet and they were like, well, now that I have your stuff, I want to assure you that I'm not a killer. I'm only a robber. I was never going to kill you. Like, you still go home fucking traumatized that, like, you would be in moments from death with a knife at your throat. It mm. wouldn't be any great assurance. That it's like, no, no, I have it on good authority that he never would have killed me. Like, <laughs> so, like, you know, even if we as the readers know that, it's still, you know, it's just the person he's threatening has no reason to know that. So it's still horrific what he's doing. Mm. I, I don't know. Maybe it's just the fact that it's like, uh, it's like the watch books and like, the entire like every single watchbook has like you know vimes dealing with characters like this and there's like you know crossbows and knives and stuff like all over the place that it's just gotten into a kind of a messy state where like any time a knife is pulled unless it's like at one of the main characters it never really feels like that much of a threat is the only explanation i can think of like why it might yeah well, well look look some things grab some readers mm. you know more than others like as you said like say there's stuff like the cherry and carrot obviously jumped out to mm. you more than it did to me so different strokes for different folks and all that yeah it just bothered me because I, I said i just felt it's particularly egregious to the teams of the watch books in general of like you're trying to do good with violence but with some form of restraint that will mm. ensure you're not just a kind of holy self-indulgent vigilante and it kind of feels like he's just allowed to be that <laughs> and and no one questions it it's, it's as if like um i don't know like like mcgarnagal was working for the watch or something <laughs> they just they just let him do what he wanted and was like well so as none of us kill billy and so this throw from here to here and eat lunch callously it's okay it um it's on on a slightly slightly different train of thought like just when you said it there what it kind of reminded me of um was uh do you remember i feel like this gets i feel like this character gets brought up in so many of our podcasts but batman right <laughs> do, do you remember oh, batman. <laughs> do you remember what do you remember when um uh that tv show gotham came about and it's like okay this is going to focus on commissioner gordon but it's also going to see like the rise of batman and i was like oh okay that's a bit of an odd way thing to focus on but i can see how it would work grand 
But then more recently now, they've had this new show called Pennyworth come out. Have you heard about this? No, is it Ben Alfred, I presume? It seems like the it seems like exactly like what you're talking about. What would annoy you so much? And it annoyed me when I saw it. It was like so. This focuses on what happened to Alfred before he became a butler, like for the the Waynes. And I'm like, but Alfred doesn't do anything really. <laughs> like like yeah, he like he's like in the command center or the back cave or whatever, like working the computers and all that kind of stuff. But he's still like this really prim butler. Like he never like as far as I know, I haven't. Don't know, I, I think I think in obviously the continuity of a character as long running as Batman is quite elastic, but I think in some of them it's implied like he was in the Secret Service or something beforehand, yes. and uh, he has some part in training young Bruce Wayne. But I mean, I see what you mean, and it is sort of stretching the appeal of, of like the central you know franchise to to use that term. It, mm. It's it's just like oh anything anyone tangentially connected to Batman, like next it'll be like. <laughs> Your man, the mechanic who fixes the Batmobile. What about a series about him, eh? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. So that's it. Right, so shall we get the ranking this? Yes, uh, this should be an interesting one now, actually, um, because I'm not sure. Well, I'm looking down right at, like, Toad is our lowest ranked watch book at 28. So let's start there. Above or below Toad? Ooh, that is a tricky one now. Um... I'm not really sure because like thought had some interesting bits in it. I, I like it's thought when I read it it wasn't as good as I remembered when I first read it. And this has the opposite problem and this is better than I than when I first read it. So um I don't know. Well I I mean I definitely feel there's something to be said for like that like Toad is kind of I said this feels like a run of the mill watch series in terms of or watch story in terms of the lack of tension. Toad kind of feels run of the mill in terms of like the issues and problems they confront. They're kind of ones we've seen before, and it's kind of like like a reheating of old ideas and and themes. So like so you could you could argue Snuff is more ambitious. I would argue Toad is at least like on the whole more competently executed in just being a you know mm-hmm. compelling story with narrative tension like it's it's not without it's it's flaws like as as we addressed when we done the episode but it's it's you know reasonably compelling story from start to finish that suffers certainly in coming after night watch which felt like such a climactic uh, moment for the 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 watch subseries and where you felt like something if it was to go on something very different than just a return to the mean was uh what mm. was needed and toad kind of felt to me more like just like Oh, it's another watch watch adventure, which which this obviously tries to be something different, but I think it kind of fails more in the just fundamental lack of tension at title. Like I would take Toad over this. Snuff probably deals with some complex ideas that we haven't encountered to this depth before on Discworld in a way that Toad doesn't bring up, but I don't know, Toad is just was just a more entertaining read for me, like yeah, that's true. Like I remember Thud, even though like it was retreading a lot of old ground, like it did, it was really entertaining right up until the end when it kind of started to fall a little bit flat with a bit of a thud. Um, <laughs> uh, Snuff, I think, is yeah, it's it's like because it's trying to take things in a whole new direction and like it's successful in some areas, but like the bits that falter falter much harder than anything in Thud does. So. Um, yeah, I feel like I'd probably put this below because despite like its ambition, 
like uh, if Thud came before Nightwatch, I feel like we would have been a lot kinder to it because like the main issue that it has really is just that like it's following like such a great act. Uh, more so than anything that's actually in the book like it would have made a really good story if it had taken place like say around the point where Jingo was instead so yeah I think I'd probably rank this below Thud then yeah so right I'm I'm, I'm looking at a kind of a, a quintet of books that are between then Thud and Unseen Academicals because I think this is better than Unseen Academicals mm. um, I think like even though it does have a lack of tension, it isn't quite as messy as Unseen Academicals is, and yeah. uh, uh, like like this, the the class stuff in Unseen Academicals is interesting because he's never really gone into it that depth before. But it's a lot more messily dealt with done, like as yeah, as as kind of naive as the finish with uh, Tears of the Mushroom, you know, winning everyone over to Goblin. There's competent stuff There's, in there. Still. Yeah, there. Yeah, yeah still. Um, that so that with that, I feel that would certainly put it above. Mm, uh, I agree. Unseen Academicals yeah. for me. So Unseen Academicals is kind of the floor there, and Tud is the ceiling. And in between, in descending order, we've got Life Fantastic at twenty nine, Making Money at thirty, Sell Me is good thirty one, Last Continent at thirty two, and Equal Rights at thirty three. So I'm thinking like it fits somewhere in there. Yeah. So like I think uh, Soul Music, Last Continent, and Equal Rights, we could almost group as one thing. Like it's either above or below because they're really, really straightforward books that don't really deal with a whole lot at all. They're really just going for entertaining romps. So the main question is like, is this like, like this book? I feel like it's it's like almost polar opposite to something like say The Last Continent because The Last Continent has very, very little substance at all but it was kind of entertaining the whole way through. Whereas this is kind of the opposite in that there is like quite a lot of substance, but it's quite dull for the most part. So um, we kind of have to decide like which direction like would we be favoring in this sense? I, I would I would tend to put it below them, to be honest, like uh, below equal rights above um, unseen academicals. Because I feel like while you're writing that this is attempting something a bit more complex, they're still dealing with like, complex ideas and um true sort of, like yeah. like none of them are say like eric which is our bottom of the bunch which is just you know all jokes and craziness and you know, mm. fun but you know like not attempting anything more substantial like like equal rights okay yeah he might deal with gender politics with greater depth and nuance and you know deftness of touch in later books but he's still attempting it for the first time there you know and and saying some interesting things um last continent like is again a sort of narratively messy book but i i I really love some of the imagery and ideas of last continent like i love the way he depicts the kind of the outback that rincewind's gone through i love the stuff on the the island of with the god of evolution with the wizards oh god Um, yeah i couldn't actually rank this above that then because that's actually such a genius bit so so would you be happy to see it go below equal rights above unseen academical sin yeah yeah, I'd be perfectly fine with that. Fair enough. New number 34, Below Equal Rights, Above Unseen Academicals. It's only took us 39, 40 episodes, but we figured out a way to do these rankings without taking another half hour at the end of the <laughs> Well, I mean, it all depends on the book, really. Like, I mean, yeah, if, we dis- yeah. if we disagree, we'll be here for ages, but I think we both felt very similar on this. And actually, it was so nice to go back to like so- like ranking something against Soul Music, Last Continent, and Equal Rights, and for something to come out below because I always feel really guilty when I'm talking about the early Terry Pratchett books and saying like oh well they weren't that great because of A, B and C but like we do forget that there's such great imagery and like really smart stuff going on there even in like the lesser books and like this actually feels really nice in a way like putting snuff down here because 
we can easily acknowledge that snuff does some things in like the deal it deals with some issues in very intelligent ways but like and like this is like one of the lowest ones that we're ranking but it's still a very interesting book in a lot of ways and like that's in its own in its own way quite satisfying to know you know like it'd be, it's much worse to have like something at the bottom and be like like say eric for example like uh something that like is completely devoid of depth but like or the color of magic like is eric i kind of don't really even think so much about but like color of magic which is just so rich in imagery but like devoid of deaths like so it's just nice to go back to that every now and then yeah yeah no, absolutely and, and again like the even the least of them even eric is is like a, you know an entertaining a more entertaining read than you would find uh, from a lot of authors so it's, it's mm. very much grading on a curve but that is snuff snuffed out (laughs) and leaving us with two remaining books with with Raising Steam up next and then The Shepherd's Crown to bring us to a close amazing okay so I guess uh, actually have you read Raising Steam before we go no no I haven't read either of these last two ones yeah me neither so this will be very interesting yeah happy the last time I'll get to read okay well I guess uh, that is that and um I will see you in about a month's time for uh, Raising Steam. Looking forward to reading it. Uh, closing out the Moist Von Lipwig trilogy. So mm-hmm. that'll be interesting to see how that goes. Uh, for a character who I thought was only going to be in one book, it's really interesting that he managed to get a whole trilogy out of it. So really looking forward to that. Yeah, yeah. We shall see it in. Uh, listeners, of course, if you want to leave us a rating or review on whatever podcast service you use, that will be highly appreciated. Um Try and give us six stars. Most services only allow you to go up to five, but maybe send them a couple of emails and argue that this podcast is just so much better than all of the others. It needs a new ranking system just to fit it. Yeah. Uh, or if you don't have time for a series of email exchanges between yourself and the iTunes store, just give us five stars. And if you want to get in touch, you can find us on Facebook or Twitter by searching for Radio Morepork. Uh, our email address is radiomorepork at gmail.com and our website is radiomorepork.wordpress.com. Uh, where you can find just links to all the episodes and the list in full um, of our rankings. Until the next time, goodbye. Toodle-oo. As I remember, I think it's the main drive of it is to kind of pitch to them that, like, you can eat these kids.